It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. No more parties in LA. Please, baby, no more parties in LA. Uh. No more parties in LA. Please, baby, no more parties in LA. Uh, no more. Please. Shake that party, party, that Shake that party, party, that Please. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. Over the past 14 days, the state has seen over 40,000 COVID patients admitted to the intensive care unit. That's a 10.6% increase, according to California Health Secretary Dr. Mark Galley, addressing the public in a press briefing less than an hour ago. Galley also announced that Southern California will remain under a regional stay-at-home order, which includes the ban of any gatherings with members outside of one's household until ICU capacity rises above 15% again. Now, for context, ICU capacity in the region is still at 0%. But despite that, the party doesn't stop. People keep gathering at large warehouse parties in places such as downtown L.A. at sites with very poor ventilation where very few people wear any masks. It's really an ideal environment for the spread of the coronavirus. And despite a pledge from L.A. Sheriff Alex Villanueva to crack down on these parties, enforcement remains lax. Cerise Castle wrote about all of this for Los Angeles Magazine and joined us to talk about what this underground party scene is all about. Well, the underground party scene hasn't really changed at all since uh, before coronavirus. Uh, before coronavirus, a lot of these parties were happening downtown. They're in warehouses that aren't zoned to be nightclubs. They're secret um, for all intents and purposes. You can only really get in if you know someone or you've been invited. And that setup has really played well to them during the coronavirus, having it be really insular. Now, the downside to that is because a lot of people have taken a public stand, a lot of influencers that had been populating those parties in the past have taken a public stand against going out and against these parties, they haven't been getting the foot traffic that they normally were. So in the past, where it would have been difficult to get into these spaces, now it's really a free-for-all. If you show up, you'll get let in. Wow. So where are these uh, primarily happening? They're happening all over L.A. County. Uh, In my reporting, I focused on a group that has been throwing parties throughout um, the coronavirus pandemic in downtown Los Angeles. But I've also heard of a number of parties happening in the Hollywood Hills at Airbnb rentals as well as at single-family dwellings in the uh, in the valley, in the Van Nuys and Sino area. So what about the people who are throwing them? What do we know about uh, them and the effort to keep these parties secret? I mean, how, how have they been able to keep them under wraps if people might be looking out for them? 
the thing about secret is they're not really so much secret. If you're looking for a party, you can find it. It's as simple as going on to Eventbrite and searching for, you know, Los Angeles party, uh, Los Angeles strip club, Los Angeles bar. All these will turn up flyers and tickets for events. A lot of people have been telling me that they're getting email blasts from some of these promoters and they have no idea how they ended up on these lists. A lot of these promoters share these lists with each other in an effort to get more people into the event and therefore more money in their pocket. So they're really coming at you from all directions. Now, have the uh, LAPD or the LA Sheriff's Department uh, stepped up enforcement during this surge since you first started reporting this story? Uh, what I have seen is the LA Sheriff, um, their super spreader task force over New Year's Eve, they uh, broke up five parties. I believe they uh, de uh, detained about 900 people and cited 90. Other than that, no. I ha The regular promoters that I'm seeing throwing these parties and events, they are continuing to openly post about them on social media. Really continue what they're doing. They're not afraid of the police stopping them. Um, and from the way things have been going, they believe that law enforcement will not be putting a stop to what they're doing. The thing about these parties is a lot of them hire off-duty law enforcement officers to actually work security. Uh, so law enforcement is very aware um, and even in some cases participating in making these parties happen. So is it like a consequence free zone for the for the people there? 100 percent. Yes. And I mean, I mean, there really aren't. Right. As far as arrests go, we've seen 90 people get arrested. But, you know, those arrests don't always translate to prosecutions. Right. Um, in my reporting in the L.A. MAG story. I spoke to the city attorney's office and they told me that while they are prosecuting several businesses for violating the health order, they do not currently have any cases against any individuals for gathering or attending these parties. So you might get, you know, a talking to by a police officer, but you know, frankly, that isn't much of a deterrent for the people that are attending and throwing these events. We're talking about underground parties in L.A. County with Cerise Castle reporting on these parties for L.A. Magazine. Um, any health precautions that uh, the planners and party goers are, are doing in attending these parties? Anything at all? None. When you go to these parties, you'll see nobody's wearing a mask. Oftentimes, uh, like you mentioned at the at the top, they are in very small enclosed spaces. Um, last night, I was watching the live stream of a party in Encino that was about 200 people in one room. People are sharing um, marijuana blunts. They're sharing other illicit substances um, hand to hand. It's it's basically a germ fest, you know. If if you're gonna get sick, this is really an environment that you know health experts have said is perfect for breeding COVID-19. What's the range of attitudes by the people throwing and going to these parties? I mean, do they think the virus is a hoax, that it's not as dangerous as it is, uh, maybe portrayed in the media, or are they just sick of lockdowns and just want to go out and party? When I've spoken to people about the virus, they are aware of its existence, but they really question the seriousness of it. A lot of people will tell me that they knew a friend that had it that was sick for a couple of days and was better. And to them, they see it as a risk that they're willing to take. They're not willing to sacrifice some of the normal things that they had been doing in their life for a public health effort. And in a weird way, Cerise, is kind of the, the whole danger of it all part of the allure, especially going on during the pandemic? 
a lot of the people that I've spoken to, they really don't think they're doing anything that crazy or dangerous at all. That's Reese Castle, who reported on the spread of large parties despite the coronavirus for Los Angeles magazines. Reese, thank you very much. Thank you. Pandemic. They're getting tired of the pandemic, aren't they? Getting tired of the pandemic. You turn on CNN, that's all they cover. COVID, COVID, pandemic, COVID, COVID, COVID. You know why? They're trying to talk everybody out of voting. People aren't buying it, CNN, you dumb bastards. They're not buying it. Their symptoms run the gamut, from shortness of breath to heart palpitations to extreme fatigue. They have become known as long haulers, people who have been infected with COVID-19 but can't seem to rid their bodies of its effects months later. As the number of cases keeps climbing and surges around the country, it means more and more people will be struggling with similar problems. This medical mystery has the medical community scrambling. Stephanie Sy has our report. This is Greg Rosen trying to go for a short run a few weeks ago. just had to stop because I, I couldn't breathe. This was Greg Rosen before COVID, sprinting to finish lines in marathons, road races, and relays across the country. Even the other day, the act of folding towels left me breathless. COVID has left me with some nasty migraines. Baltimore Middle School teacher Shamir Smith has spent the better part of the last nine months in bed. It felt like a ghost or a monster had started to inhabit my body. And New Jersey father of three and guidance counselor Dane Tabano has terrible brain fog. When it gets bad, I get like this buzzing and ringing in my ears. And um, my short-term memory is, is really poor. And he's also struggled with tachycardia, elevated heart rate since July. That makes it tough for the former University of Michigan wrestler to run his wrestling school. If I actually stood in front of an athlete now and tried to work out with them in a wrestling practice. I don't think I could sustain more than five to 10 minutes at this point. But back when I was in the, the worst of it, I probably wouldn't even do two or three minutes. These three previously healthy individuals are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s and are now suffering long haul COVID. For me, my experience has been intense acute illness followed by continued acute illness <laughs> for months on end. So it's been about six months now that I've been sick. Are you somebody that got sick a lot before? No, I have no underlying health conditions. I had no idea that in the course of, of nine months that I would lose my vision or sometimes lose my ability to move my left arm and left leg. By best estimates, nearly 23 million Americans are known to have had COVID-19. And of those, more than 375,000 have died. It's unknown how many of those 22 million others may suffer long-haul effects down the road there were many members of our group who were a couple of months into COVID and were not recovering and in fact were sort of spiraling and down and getting worse. We first met Diana Barrett last spring after she founded Survivor Corps, an online community for COVID survivors like herself that's now grown to over 125,000 members. I am fully clear of the virus. Back then, she didn't think she'd be calling herself a long hauler. I had a good six to eight weeks where I, th I felt like I was really much better. And then over the summer, I had a complete symptomatic relapse. I was having 
tremendous gastrointestinal problems. I lost so much weight. I could not put it back on no matter what I did. Um, I was diagnosed with COVID onset glaucoma at the beginning of September. And she certainly didn't think her 12-year-old son, Spencer, who had a mild case of COVID in March, was at risk. He was sitting on the couch watching television and one of his teeth, his front adult teeth, spontaneously fell out with no blood loss. I immediately posted to Survivor Corps and said, has this happened to anybody? And the answers started flooding in of so many people experiencing spontaneous loss um, with no blood loss, cracked teeth, all kinds of dental issues. There are tens of millions of people who are COVID survivors who may be carrying this vascular damage in their bodies with them going forward, and we can't leave those people behind. Dr. William Lee is a vascular biologist studying the 60,000-mile network of blood vessels in each of us that connects every organ in every cell in our bodies, supplying them with nutrients. We think this long hauler syndrome has a vascular component, which I study, a autoimmune component, inf inflammation, and also a neurological component. So this seems to be the three legs of the stool. In March, he started studying lung tissue from people who died of COVID. That that beautiful lace-like architecture has been completely destroyed. More recently, he's been looking at what COVID can do to the heart. And on the right-hand side, you can see what, it, what happens in a COVID patient. When the virus infects the blood vessels in the heart, it completely destroys that normal architecture. This is sort of like a, you know, I call this a kind of scared straight image. It's uh, like it reminds me of the image you see in the back of a cigarette box. Exactly. Exactly. Dr. Lee has also been able to use special imaging software to see more than a CT scan can capture. Acute, the small blood vessels are really wiped out. This is living patients, long-term COVID, better, but not fully recovered. And by the way, this patient's CT scan of their chest was read by the radiologist completely normal. This is not no completely normal. And this particular patient went to get a scan because she was still short of breath. So how is it the average person who says, goes and gets a CT scan and doesn't have you, Dr. Lee, <laughs> supposed to know whether they have this long-term damage? This is what I'm working on. I mean, literally... This is like a new page of the textbook of medicine because we need to get the word out that this is the kind of research that is being done to give people an answer that, that what they're feeling is in fact real. This is a phenomenon that is really quite real and quite extensive. Good morning. At a two-day virtual conference in early December run by the National Institutes of Health, one thing was clear. Doctors have more questions than answers about this medical mystery. There's definitely still a lot that's unknown. We are flying a little bit blind here. We're not exactly sure what we're looking for. Wondering how much more of this I'll have to go through. Shamir Smith has been through a barrage of tests like this EEG and often been told it's all in her head. For the better part of nine months, I spent time uh, fighting for my life by myself and trying to get doctors to believe me. And it's been a harrowing journey. I do not want um, um, another black woman to go into a hospital um, with these symptoms that go on and on and on and seem so never ending. And to be told um, that she's too smart to know about her body or that she's too aggressive um, um, to, to take action on what happens to her health. I don't want that for anybody. 
For Greg Rosen, months of debilitating symptoms without a clear diagnosis, prognosis, or even an idea of what lasting damage there is has been traumatizing. These are the medicines I'm taking. I feel like I'm, I'm fighting a battle against my body, but I'm also fighting a battle against the world right now. I think this is one of those things that even if I physically get well enough to feel more like myself, I think the emotional toll this experience has left on me will be something I never forget. This is a situation where doctors need to listen to patients who are bringing their symptoms to teach us as medical community what's actually happening. It's the exact opposite of what normally happens where doctors are telling the patients. Shamir Smith's persistence to find answers is paying off. A new diet and medication regimen is making her feel a little better. On my darkest days, in the dark, um, no light in my room at all, and I couldn't even really see anything, I could not imagine the future for myself. And now I actually can. And I'm happy about that. Well, this is a cliche too, but it sounds like it made you stronger. Yeah, girl. Yes. <laughs> Don't have me crying up in here. Yes, absolutely. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Sai. Such important reporting. Thank you, Stephanie. And uh, I know we're going to continue to follow this. Oh, what a story. White. Is the Operation Warp Speed may have produced effective COVID vaccines in record time, but administering them has been another matter. The CDC says only about 9 million of the more than 25 million doses distributed have actually been given. As John Yang reports, the Trump administration today made big changes to the program. Judy, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar announced the changes. The administration will begin to release all available doses of the vaccine. It had been holding back roughly half because these are two-shot vaccines, but officials are now confident that the supply is sufficient. It's urging states to vaccinate anyone 65 or older and anyone with an underlying medical condition that could threaten their life if they get COVID. It will send more doses to states that are vaccinating people more efficiently. And it will encourage states to set up more places to get the vaccine. All this comes in advance of what's expected to be an announcement from President-elect Joe Biden of his vaccination plans. Jennifer Nuzzo is an epidemiologist at the Coronavirus Resource Center at Johns Hopkins University, and she joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Why make these changes or why was it necessary for the officials to make these changes now? And were these the right changes to make? Well, I think these changes reflect the fact that people are frustrated that um, vaccines aren't rolling out as quickly as it had been promised. I mean, you know, initially we had heard that um, by the end of uh, the year, uh, 20 million Americans would be vaccinated, and um, we are very far away from um, having achieved that goal. And so, you know, the approach that was initially taken, which would be to um, give the vaccine to the highest priority group, you know, I think is still an important goal, but it's a very slow, methodical, stepwise goal, and it's not going to achieve the, the vaccination numbers that I think people were very much expecting. Is there a risk or are there potential downsides to this new strategy? Sure. Well, one of the risks is just that as we open it up broadly, we lose the ability to target what, you know, still limited vaccine supplies we have for the people that we, you know, think are either 
at highest risk due to exposure. And you can understand why that was an initial priority in a lot of places. Yet at the same time, there's still a lot of uh, people, particularly those um, you know, 65 and older, who are um, at greatest risk of becoming hospitalized and dying from this virus. So you can see the real tension and, and trade-offs there. You know, we're, we're sort of at an inflection point with the change of administrations, uh, a chance to sort of rethink this whole strategy and perhaps make even bigger changes. Are there things uh, in particular that you would urge the uh, the Biden administration or, or his people who are coming in to think about approaching this program differently? Well, up until now, we've basically just focused on developing the vaccine. And, you know, the federal response was to develop the vaccine and just sort of hand it off to the states, give them some high level guidance, but basically say good luck. That it clearly has not achieved what we needed to achieve. And so now I think there is an opportunity to say, how can we have a national strategy? What federal resources can be brought to bear to help states with this very audacious goal of trying to you know, conduct the largest vaccination campaign this country has ever done in modern history. So I think uh, recognizing that the federal government um, can't just, you know, uh, take a light touch on this issue and really needs to, to dig in and help states, because the sooner we get all states protected, the sooner, you know, our lives can, you know, get back to normal, we can restore our economy, et cetera. You know, you work at, with healthcare workers at Johns Hopkins, and I wonder if you can help lay people like myself understand what seems to be sort of a, 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 an oddity. The fact that there are, uh, at least anecdotally, a large number of healthcare workers who are reluctant to take this vaccine. Help us explain that. Sure. So this is something that we see every year. Healthcare workers, though they work in in uh, facilities um, that are, um, you know, surrounded by science, they're regular people too, and they are subject to the same disinformation campaigns that are, um, you know, waging against the American public to try to discourage them against getting vaccinated. So it's very much something that we have to, um, you know, should have anticipated and should have planned for how to boost confidence and to educate and to encourage people, not only about the importance of getting vaccinated, the safety of vaccines and the benefits of getting vaccinated, but also, again, about the, the threat that this virus poses. And that's another dimension that, you know, is somewhat new. You know, seasonal influenza isn't typically politicized at the same level that COVID-19 has. And, you know, you have people who just openly deny the existence of the virus and deny it as a, a threat to them. And if, if people fall in those categories, you can imagine why they might not be so willing to get vaccinated. And how concerned are you that that a year into this or almost a year into this, this nation still hasn't been able to sort of stem the roller coaster effect of, 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 of cases, of new cases? We are at the worst point that we've ever been. Uh, the case numbers continue to accelerate. The U.S. adds about a million cases uh, at least every four days. So, you know, that is extraordinary uh, growth in cases. And you would think by this point we would have a better strategy for trying to control the virus. It's great that we have vaccines. It's, it's, it's a scientific gift that we have a vaccine now. But as you can see, the vaccines are rolling out slowly. And in the meantime, we still have to use the other measures that we've been trying to use for the past year to control the spread. We have to increase our testing. We have to make sure anybody who tests positive is able to stay home so that they don't infect others. We need to do more contact tracing so that we understand in what environments this virus is, is transmitting. And we need to make sure that anyone who's a contact of the case is able to stay home. Those efforts have largely ground to a halt as of late. And that's a really worrisome situation to be in, given the case growth that we've seen and given the fact that we haven't yet seen the full effects of what um, the holiday gatherings will likely do to the acceleration of our case numbers. Jennifer Nuzzo, an epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Thank you very much.
Thanks for having me. All them A's and them B's start to turn into C's. Go from crossing niggas over and running from D's. For you know it, coppers pointing at you, telling you freeze. And you can't afford a lawyer, so they telling you plead. Man, this shit worse than cancer, like a fucking disease. Living a nightmare, they telling this dream. Look what they did to Martin Luther, bullet holes in our kings. And they wonder why we never believe. And they wonder why we never believe, nigga, we poor. Young niggas warned about that corner store, but the chinks on that. And you claiming that's your block, who you think on that? Quick sand in the hood and we gon' sink on that. You should think on that. Poison water out in Flint, they let them little babies drink on that. They don't care about us. According to multiple media reports, Michigan's former governor and other officials will be charged in relation to the Flint water crisis seven years ago. Despite possible criminal charges, a lot of residents still question whether those officials will be held accountable. Michigan Radio's Steve Carmody reports. Nearly seven years ago, government leaders here pushed the button that switched the city of Flint's drinking water source from Detroit's water system to the Flint River. Here's the Flint. Here's the Flint. Here it is. The intent was to save money. The result was a complete disaster. Improperly treated river water damaged pipes, which then released lead and other contaminants into the city's drinking water. Eighteen months later, the water was switched back, but the damage was done. Blood lead levels soared in young children. People were forced to use bottled water for drinking and washing clothes. The city was forced to rip out thousands of old pipes. While testifying about the Flint water crisis before Congress four years ago, former Governor Rick Snyder acknowledged the mistakes. Local, state, and federal officials, they all failed the families of Flint. Snyder was not among the 15 state and local government officials who faced criminal charges for their handling of the crisis. Half of them pled guilty to lesser charges in exchange for no jail time. And in 2019, Michigan's new attorney general dropped charges against the remaining defendants, citing problems with the original investigation. The investigation seemed over until yesterday, when the Associated Press reported that several former government officials, including former Governor Snyder, would be facing new charges. If that happens, legal experts say it would be a difficult case for prosecutors. Peter Hammer teaches law at Wayne State University in Detroit. He says despite possible difficulty getting convictions, it's important to bring charges. Especially in an era where we're living where people are not being held accountable, this could be an important statement about the, the significance of the rule of law and that not even the highest public official in the state is going to get off scot-free. A spokeswoman for former Governor Rick Snyder calls the reports of impending charges a public relations smear campaign, saying that if brought, they would be meritless. Since enduring 18 months of foul-smelling, dirty tap water that made them sick, Flint residents have demanded justice and compensation. A U.S. District Court judge is expected to decide in the coming days if she'll give preliminary approval to a massive settlement agreement resolving most of the thousands of outstanding lawsuits. Last year, the state of Michigan announced it struck a deal with attorneys representing Flint residents to pay $600 million into a settlement fund. A few months later, the city of Flint, a local hospital, and an engineering firm agreed to chip in another $41 million. Nearly 80% of that money would be set aside for plaintiffs who were young children or minors during the crisis. They are the ones most at risk for suffering long-term lead-related health problems. But a growing chorus of critics say it's not enough. A group of Flint civic and religious leaders, led by Pastor John McLean, gathered Monday outside the city's water plant to express concern about the settlement. We believe that the proposed settlement, as currently allocated, is just as disrespectful as the injury caused by the water crisis tragedy itself. In addition to tens of thousands of Flint residents, there are the lawyers, lots of them. More than 140 took part in a Zoom hearing with the judge last month. 
This is part of the challenge facing the judge, how to divide a large pool of money without leaving some feeling victimized again. Flint's mayor says it's important his residents have a belief in justice, and developments this week may help with that. For NPR News, I'm Steve Carmody in Flint. Let's turn now to a different impact of COVID on higher education. Typically, during a recession, community college enrollment goes up as unemployed workers start looking for new skills. But that is not happening now. It could mean trouble for the economy going forward, particularly for low-income students. Hari Srinivasan has our story. It's part of our ongoing series, Rethinking College. Everybody goes through those days where they just feel like, well, maybe I should just stop and maybe I should just give up and maybe I should say, well, it's not even worth it. It's been one of those days for Andrew Crowley, one of those years. He's been trying to focus on his studies at Columbus State Community College, but his mom died of cancer recently. He hoped to make more time for schoolwork by reducing his hours at Walmart. And I try to explain to them, well, I need to cut back on some of my time so I can be able to study. And they really didn't, like, kind of agree with me on that. So, he says, they let him go. Which kind of led me to be homeless. Crowley doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. He stuck it out. He even says he maintained A's and B's while living in a shelter during a pandemic. But he came close to being part of a troubling statistic this fall. Community colleges have seen enrollment plummet 10.1% compared to last year nearly 21% among freshmen, and almost a 30% drop for freshmen who are either black, Hispanic, or Native American in each group. The total loss at public two-year schools? More than 540,000 fewer students compared to last fall. Put another way, more than the population of Atlanta. Our students have life. Desiree Pope Bland, Columbus State's Vice President for Student Affairs, says some of her colleagues took it as a red flag when Crowley began to participate less in his classes. They persuaded him to share his troubles. We're going to start putting that right in there, okay? Okay. Then they got him a job at this campus-based food pantry and found him permanent housing. All of these factors interfere with being a successful student. Anything that takes your attention away from going to class studying, spending time with the material, ends up being a factor that impacts your ability to continue as a student. 56% of black and Hispanic students have reported that COVID-19 is very likely or likely to force them out of school, compared to 44% of whites. The National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, which tracks college enrollment, says the drop among freshman students in particular this fall was unprecedented, Doug Shapiro is the executive research director. These are truly staggering drops just in, in terms of the, the quantities, the size of the, of the declines. College enrollments generally have been slowly shrinking every year, pretty much since the end of the Great Recession. But it's, it's never been more than one or, one or two percentage points. We've never seen anything like this. Only 13% of students who drop out return to college, according to the group. These are the most often the most vulnerable and disadvantaged students who will have real difficulties ever getting back on track educationally. Okay. There are the logistical challenges, like what Liliana Palafox faces, homeschooling and caring for her six-year-old daughter without so much as a quiet space to study. 
That is when the internet connection actually works. The internet dropping, not connecting right away, having to move around the house to be able to get signal. And then also like my daughter or my husband sometimes using the hotspot, so we share it. Then there are the deeper inequalities the pandemic has laid bare. My father passed away due to COVID-19. Tyler Lopez's father was already in the hospital with multiple sclerosis when the pandemic struck. He died of COVID-19 in the spring. Lopez tried to channel his grief into schoolwork. He's a sophomore studying jazz drumming at New Jersey City University. Multiple times I thought about quitting. I thought about just forgetting it all. Music kept him moving forward. The drums, that's what prevented it. Uh, my love for music it is hard, but the love outweighs the stress. Schools are doing what they can to keep students enrolled. Lopez's school, New Jersey City University, is a campus where the majority of students are minorities, and many are from the lowest income bracket. The school provided loaner laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots for homebound studies, in-person classes for visual or high-touch programs, open dorms and libraries for those who need them, and socially distanced sports teams operating on a limited basis. But in a year like this, it hasn't always been enough, says Jody Bailey, the school's associate vice president of student affairs. Some students have simply disappeared. I worry about them because of rent, and I worry about them because of food, and I worry about them because of the medical issues that their families have. We know that low-income and minority families in general don't seek out medical assistance as quickly as they should for a variety of reasons, and COVID could tear their families apart. I worry for them. If my friends are doing it, then we should all take a break together, but... Melanie Alvarez, a senior at California State University at Northridge, has felt nearly all of the pressure points and one more. She was the first to graduate high school in her family, the first to go to college. All eyes have been on her. The pandemic happened, like, I think my brother and my sister were all looking to me like, okay, what is she going to do? Like, is she going to drop out? Is she going to stay in college? And it was hard to tell my brother, like... You know what you have to push through because I also felt at one point that I, I didn't want to continue anymore. Alvarez says close friends and study partners have taken a break in recent months, but she decided to continue. The stakes seem too high. My parents have always told me, you know, like there's nothing that we can inherit to you other than the education, like other than motivation, there's nothing that we can give to you. So my parents' motivation to like go to school is always like number one, and I'm always doing it for my younger siblings. So they're definitely like following my footsteps. Her brother recently enrolled in community college, so for now, Alvarez says she'll keep moving. The question is, how many others will get stopped in their tracks? For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Hari Srinivasan. 75% of traditional college-age students report poor mental health tied to the pandemic. We'll examine the impact in our Rethinking College series next Tuesday. I don't want to cause any problems, Lieutenant. I just want a new partner. Oh, I understand. Your partner's a racist prick, but you don't want to stir up any bad feelings with him. Well, he's been on the force for a long time. And, uh, 17 years. And I do have to work here, sir. So, you don't mind that there's a racist prick on the force. You just don't want him to ride in your car. If you need me to go on record about this, sir, I will. That'd be great. Write a full report. Because I'm anxious to understand how an obvious bigot could have gone undetected in this department for 17 years. 11 of which he was under my personal supervision, which doesn't speak very highly of my managerial skills. But that's not your concern. I can't wait to read it.
Law enforcement officers were overpowered by that violent mob in the nation's capital last week. Disturbing videos show that police officers were kicked and punched and beaten with flagpoles. One police officer was killed and another later died by suicide off duty. But there were also a few police officers that appeared to sympathize with the mob. NPR's Layla Fottle reports that for current and retired black police officers, it was particularly upsetting. Last week, Sharon Blackman Malloy watched her former colleagues try to stave off attackers at the Capitol, a lone black officer heroically facing a largely white mob as they first breached the building. A lot of them felt like they were all all along. Blackman Malloy is a retired U.S. Capitol Police officer and the vice president of the United States Black Capitol Police Association, which led a class action lawsuit in 2012 against the Capitol Police for alleged discrimination. She's also the lead plaintiff in the historic 2001 class action discrimination lawsuit against the Capitol Police Board. Her organization is calling for criminal charges against the sergeant-at-arms of the House and the Senate as well as the former U.S. Capitol Police chief who resigned after the attack. Because they left them unprepared. She's spoken to black police officers that were at the Capitol that day. They're traumatized. Some in the crowd called them the N-word. Some are injured. They're also scared because they saw a few of their white colleagues show sympathy with the mob. Several Capitol Police officers were suspended as the department investigates the attack on Congress. Among them, the officer who took selfies with rioters and another who popped on a MAGA hat and directed attackers around the building. Blackman Malloy says black Capitol police officers told her this about Inauguration Day. And then now you expect me to go stand beside an officer not knowing whether or not he's one of one of the terrorists. And that's what that's what we deem them to be. There were some off-duty police officers from outside D.C. in the crowd. Police departments are investigating. And that's not lost on so many police officers around the country, particularly black police officers who face discrimination on the force. Carl Shaw sued the police division of the city of Columbus for racial discrimination and settled for $475,000. You have good police officers and you have bad police officers. And in my case, if it wouldn't have been for white officers standing up and risking their careers, I wouldn't have had a leg to stand on. I, I just think we need to change the way we police and the hiring practices also. The settlement, which conceded no wrongdoing, included a demand that the retaliation he faced for reporting racism by a superior be a fireable offense. Shaw retires next month. If you're treating black officers this way, what are you doing to the general public? Heather Taylor, a recently retired sergeant from the St. Louis Police Department, was texting with other black officers as she watched the attack on Congress. She thought about many of her fellow officers who made the assumption that Trump flags meant support for law enforcement, even when the crowds were incited by the president's lies and included hate groups. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter protesters demanding racial justice were treated as hostile. I don't know if they realize that these people who are extremists, who are militia, who are a part of these groups are about civil war. They want civil war. They want to do away with the government. And law enforcement has catered to them. Taylor most recently headed the Ethical Society of Police, a St. Louis police organization that addresses racial discrimination in the police force and the community. Okay, well, they're going to see. They're going to see that these people are going to turn on them, that the police are going to see that these same people that you supported over African-Americans in Black Lives Matter, you're going to see that it's different, that they're going to turn on you. And sure enough, it was worse than what we could ever imagine. In Minneapolis, Metro Transit Police Chief Eddie Frizzell says he did more planning for the Super Bowl in Minneapolis than what he saw in the Capitol last week. 
Now he worries about the expected armed protests around the country this weekend. I served in Bosnia right after the war-torn genocide had taken place, and we've seen what a tyrannical regime will do to a country in Iraq. And all those experiences are all coming to a head right now. It gives me a frame of reference to take my experiences and be able to aptly apply them to the unknown that we're experiencing right now. The unknown that we're experiencing right now. Leila Falden, NPR News. You know, First Ladies usually have a cause, and you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt, and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. Tech fallout from the riots in the Capitol has continued. As we reported, Twitter has instituted a permanent ban of the president's account. Facebook indefinitely suspended President Trump from its platform. The company also said yesterday that it would remove all content mentioning Stop the Steal, a phrase popular among supporters of President Trump's claims about the election. Apple and Google suspended the social media site Parler from their app stores. And Amazon said it would no longer provide cloud computing services for the network. We've talked about Parler before. Some have turned to the platform as a less moderated alternative to more mainstream social media companies. And some Parler users had been using the platform to organize before, during, and after the riots. The company said Parler wasn't doing enough to police content that incites violence. And through their combined action, they've made it impossible to download Parler's app through Apple and Google's app stores or log in via the Internet. Here's our tech editor, Bodhi Atwe, with more on how they made that decision. Within the last week, companies basically sent notices to say, hey, is there a way, you know, we think that you guys need to clean up your act. Google and Apple specifically, and even Amazon to an extent said, you know, we don't think your content moderation rules are sufficient uh, that we can host you on our platforms. Uh, We have rules that, you know, if you have user generated content, you have to do some level of moderation to make sure there isn't a ton of bad stuff on there. Parler replied to the companies and say, hey, you know, we, we actually do have content moderation rules and we've actually been trying to do more, more moderation of late. But, you know, in essence, the companies proceeded with their decisions by saying, you know, hey, this we hear you. But without saying specifically what steps to take, they said, you know, the plan that you guys have isn't enough and we just can't have you on our platform anymore. Now, Parler is suing Amazon, saying their actions are politically motivated. They said Amazon applied a double standard to Parler compared with other platforms. And they accused Amazon of trying to reduce competition in the microblogging market to benefit Twitter, with which Amazon recently signed a multi-year web hosting deal. For their part, a spokesman for Amazon Web Services said the claims had no merit and that it respected Parler's right to determine what content it allows. But he said Parler had shown that it was unable or unwilling to take down violent content, which is a violation of Amazon's terms of service. Needless to say, there are a lot of questions about how all this will play out, particularly as lawmakers have already been looking at social media companies' roles in the online marketplace. So here to talk more about this is our tech policy reporter, Ryan Tracy. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that Parler has said here is that these actions are politically motivated. And conservatives have long been accusing social media companies of trying to rein in free speech and more strictly moderating them than more liberal groups. Do these latest actions add fuel to that fire? Yeah, I mean, this was something that was already about to boil over. I mean, if you think about the lead up to the election, the 
incredible backlash that Twitter and Facebook got for how they handled the New York Post story about Hunter Biden in the weeks before the election uh, really angered a lot of people on the right. And this is just feeding that narrative even more, you know, blocking Trump was sort of the, the ultimate weapon that Twitter had. And they've now done that. And, you know, it's really unclear where we go from here, but there's a lot of anger, certainly, and and feeling that Twitter did this for reasons of political bias. And, you know, Twitter obviously strongly pushes back on that and says we treat everyone the same. And and what we see, you know, is incitement of violence. And and that's why we're acting. And I want to talk more about how this fits into questions that lawmakers are already asking about these tech companies. Some lawmakers are in the process of reviewing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives these platforms a liability shield for how they moderate content. How could these latest actions impact that process? Well, big tech was already going to be under scrutiny in this Congress. And this just makes that, you know, all the more certain. And and really, I think motive is going to motivate Republicans to look at this and potentially, you know, we'll have to see, but potentially join with Democrats to adopt some legislation targeting big tech. You know, for example, we saw on Friday after Twitter's action against President Trump, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's, uh, you know, the top Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee, kind of moved beyond a position that he had taken before. He had talked about, we should change Section 230. Now he's with Trump and saying, get rid of it. So, you know, that's a small thing, but it just shows that the events of the last week really have kind of paved the way potentially for legislation on this. And, you know, passing legislation is always really hard and Congress is going to have a lot to do. uh, And that doesn't mean that something's definitely going to happen, but it does make it more likely. So Parler also is accusing these companies of coordinating to squelch a competitor. And that's something that both Democrats and Republicans have been looking into. They both had concerns about big tech's market power. Google and Facebook are being sued on antitrust grounds and other companies are being investigated as well. Part of the charges in some of the antitrust suits include concerns that some of these companies may have collaborated in order to maintain their position in the market. How do you think these latest events will play into ongoing and future antitrust investigations? Well, it's not clear yet whether there will be an antitrust investigation of what the companies did to Parler. Parler has filed its suit, and so it will be able to pursue those claims on its own, even if the federal government doesn't get involved. But I think you do have to, I mean, even if you're not a government official, you sort of take a step back and look at this and think, wow, you know, here was a company going along, actually getting a lot of downloads, and in a matter of a few days has basically been totally shut down. That is a lot of power that's held by a few companies, you know? And so I think lawmakers are having that reaction too. And whether that shakes out into specific legislation isn't clear yet. I talked over the weekend with one Republican congressman, Ken Buck from Colorado, He said he thinks Republicans really need to start being more open to the idea that there ought to be more antitrust enforcement against big tech companies. Because in his view, if you're a conservative and you're concerned about censorship or free speech, what you need to do is look at the market power that these companies have. Now, there are lots of Republicans that may be skeptical of that because traditionally they've not wanted the government to get involved in the marketplace as much as Democrats have. But, you know, maybe there's some some more room for compromise there. Maybe this whole situation motivates 
members of Congress to legislate more on antitrust. And there are going to be those efforts, and, and they have even more momentum now. And one other thing we should note, by the way, is Democrats are now in control of the Senate. And so that, that just makes it easier to pass legislation when you have one party in control of both the House and the Senate. And of course, we should say here that the companies have denied those allegations of anti-competitive behavior, and they say they operate in very competitive marketplaces. You know, Ryan, we've talked a lot about how Republicans are responding. What do Democrats say to all this? Well, on the one hand, Democrats are very pleased uh, that the social media companies have become more aggressive. You know, there were a lot of them that wanted Twitter to permanently ban President Trump many, many months, even years ago. And so they're happy about that. On the other hand, they're also saying, why did this take so long? Why did it have to get to the point where there was a riot at the Capitol for you to take this step? And that means that Democrats are still wondering, still actively working on the idea that there ought to be more regulation of these companies. You know, if anything, it has reinforced that notion for a lot of them because they think this got way too far and the government should have been more proactive. And it seems like this moment has brought these two previously disparate complaints against big tech a bit closer together. That's the Section 230 complaints and the antitrust concerns. Could that complicate the path forward for these companies? Well, it complicates it in the sense that, you know, it's harder to fight all these different battles at once. But on the other hand, you know, it could cut the other way, right? If Congress isn't particularly focused on one issue or the other and they're kind of all over the place, Maybe that makes it less likely that anything gets done at all. So we'll have to see whether these efforts actually get momentum. And one of the points that we make in a story that we published earlier this week is that some debates about tech regulation are more advanced than others. So in the case of privacy, for example, lawmakers have coalesced around a couple of bills that would put consumer data privacy protections in place and would affect the companies. That legislation looks more ready to move than, say, Section 230, where lawmakers are actually kind of all over the place. There are a lot of different proposals out there. Joe Biden has said that he wants to revoke the law, but he hasn't really said what he would replace it with and what exactly that would look like. And so there's kind of the process with Section 230 is not as advanced. And so, you know, that would lead one to believe, well, maybe privacy legislation or even antitrust legislation will move more quickly than Section 230. Uh, you know, but that could be wrong. We'll have to see what happens once the Congress gets rolling. And frankly, once it deals with all these other things it has to deal with, like impeachment and COVID and uh, all these other issues that are going to be way ahead of tech regulation in terms of, you know, priority. Yeah, they've got a lot on their plate right from the start there. So uh, taking a step back here, all of these companies are arguing that they had to take the measures that they did because people are using their platforms to incite violence. And this feels like a moment in which we might get some answers about whose responsibility it actually is to address that, the tech companies or the regulators. Yeah, you know, I think what this really brings up is we still haven't, as a country, really figured out what the rules of the road are for the Internet, right? You know, what is the standard by which someone can be blocked on a social media site? Well, there are lots of different answers to that. Twitter has one answer. Facebook has another answer. YouTube has another answer. There's, there are no standards about this. We're kind of making it up as we go along, in a sense. And the government, you know, certainly has a role. And we've seen tech executives sometimes ask the government, please help us with this. 
tell us what to do. Give us some North Star. And Congress really hasn't done that. And so you're seeing the companies have to make these decisions on their own. And, you know, I think with with the events of the past week where in the view of the companies and many others, democracy was really at stake, that kind of changed the game and made them go to a place they had never gone before. You know, so now we're in this new world where the sitting president of the United States has been blocked. You know, it's never been clear that that we need some standards. We need to know, like, when that should happen, when that when it's OK for that to happen and when it isn't. You know, so that's the kind of issues that Congress is going to be grappling with. And, you know, absent Congress doing anything, it effectively continues to be the company's decision. All right. That's our reporter, Ryan Tracy. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Take care. The watch. The watch. The watch. The watch. I was locked up for no reason, Najir Parks told the New York Times last month. Parks was recounting his arrest for allegedly shoplifting from a New Jersey Hampton Inn gift shop, giving officers a false ID, and then making a run for it in a rental car. Except that Parks had proof that he was 30 miles away when all of that happened. But police were convinced they had the right man. They used facial recognition to match Najir Park's face to that of the black man pictured on the phony ID. Park's story backs up activist concerns about the critical flaws of artificial intelligence, specifically facial recognition. Studies have confirmed that facial recognition routinely misidentifies women and especially people of color which is why I'm alarmed that Governor Charlie Baker insisted that it be included in the recently passed police reform bill. State lawmakers passed the bipartisan bill after months of intense negotiation and deliberately excluded facial recognition. But Governor Baker made it clear he would only sign the bill with a facial recognition amendment, despite widespread vocal opposition from black and brown lawmakers, the ACLU, and members of the Celtics basketball team. Police unions in Massachusetts lobbied for facial recognition to be included, claiming the methodology has been successful in identifying criminals. And that is true in some cases. But what is also true is that this technology has a dangerous bias. As the National Institute of Standards and Technology reported, recognition technology misidentifies Asian and African-American faces 10 to 100 times more than white faces, even more for Native American faces. In a test sample, 28 congressional members, mostly people of color, including the late civil rights icon John Lewis, were positively and erroneously identified with mugshots from a law enforcement database. No one understands the limitations of this flawed technology more than MIT's Joy Bulamwini, the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and a top expert in artificial intelligence. Dr. Bulamwini has used her extensive research documenting the inherent bias in AI to persuade corporations like Microsoft, Amazon, and IBM not to sell facial recognition technology to police departments. And last year, I highlighted the four Massachusetts cities, including Cambridge, which banned facial recognition's use. Clearly, the amendment included in the law goes against the tide of ever-widening acceptance that facial recognition in its current form can be harmful. 
Given its potential for harm, the now police-sanctioned use of the technology stands to undermine the other positive measures in the police reform law. One of the reasons State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz called the compromises in the legislation heartbreaking. The police reform law is absolutely a significant step toward addressing the concerns of citizens who've often suffered at the hands of violent police officers with little recourse. But Najir Park's story is a sharp reminder of what's at stake with facial recognition. The 33-year-old, who was jailed before his case was finally dismissed, notes how scary the misidentification was, saying, I just never thought it would happen to me. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local, NPR. common knowledge that the FBI has a database of people's fingerprints. Many local police have their databases, too, and so it turns out does the United States military. American forces have been gathering biometric data on the people they encounter in war zones for years. It's a way to tell the good guys from the bad, though the investigative reporter Annie Jacobson argues it doesn't always work. In a book called First Platoon, Jacobson follows the lies of Americans told to gather that data in Afghanistan, and she questions what the U.S. government means to do with it all. The Defense Department comes up with this idea that the only way to win the war on terror is through biometrics, through the tagging, tracking, and locating of individual people. And there began the birth of this system, which is now a Defense Department system called the Automated Biometrics Identification System, known as ABIS. Let's talk about which biometrics we mean here. Fingerprints, obviously, but what else? Then you have iris scans, facial images, and ultimately DNA that are now all being used by the Defense Department to create catalogs of people all around the world and also in the United States who can then be linked to a crime. How did the Pentagon build up and then apply this database in Afghanistan? It began originally in Iraq with a bunch of FBI agents who I interview for the book, helping out the Defense Department, figuring out who the bomb makers were. It was this idea that, you know, until you go after the bomb makers, you're just going to have this ongoing war. And so FBI agents were teaching Defense Department employees how to pull fingerprints off of bomb parts. And then the Defense Department decided, well, we don't really want FBI agents muddling around in our business. We're going to take over this program ourselves. And that's when things get very complicated in Afghanistan, starting around 2010, when the Defense Department decided to create what was called rule of law in Afghanistan. Meaning that the Defense Department, which was fighting a war in Afghanistan, was going to approach 
the conflict not as a conflict involving armed groups, although it obviously was that, but as a law enforcement effort where they would go after specific suspects in society using these biometrics. Is that right? Absolutely. And they created this sprawling billion-dollar system based on the fundamental of an American criminal justice system, which very simply has three components, law enforcement, courts, and corrections. So cops, judicial system, and then prisons, or in the case of Afghanistan, detainees. And so this is where First Platoon comes in, because unbeknownst to them, they were essentially acting like cops on a beat. And so were countless platoons across Afghanistan, young soldiers who are now patrolling villages, carrying small biometric collection devices to create a giant catalog, which would then be used as the database to compare criminal fingerprints pulled off bombs from. How much of the population of Afghanistan is in the database now? The original goal by the Defense Department was to capture biometrics on 80% of the population of Afghanistan. Approximately 25 million people was the goal. Did they reach it? It's unknown because these statistics are jealously guarded by the Defense Department and they're not available from the government of Afghanistan. Well, however many millions of people they have ended up with in the database, do military officials contend that this database has helped them fight the war? It depends who you ask. If you ask someone at the FBI, they would likely tell you no. The, the Defense Department officials that I interviewed, mostly those who were involved in setting up this system, concede how many mistakes were made. You know, I think when we look at a worst-case scenario, maybe look at a place like China. Um, China is often criticized for this program that they now have going on called Physicals for All. And it's, in essence, a program to capture biometrics on all of the, the Uyghurs who live in China. So they have, you know, a program to tag, track, and locate and detain Uyghurs. Well, this is widely criticized among human rights organizations around the world, and yet, in essence, they took a page out of the playbook of the U.S. Defense Department. What's the ultimate danger here? I think, one, these biometric big data surveillance systems and databases are dividing people into us and them. You know, overseas we saw it with civilian and insurgent. Here in the United States, we see it with law-abiding citizen and potential threat. I think that dividing people in this manner opens up the door for more division, more polemics, and ultimately more fighting between different groups of people instead of everybody working together for this common idea that rule of law is actually a great thing for a democratic society. Andy Jacobson, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. This the city of Chicago. Some Chicagoans traveled to Washington, D.C. this week. They bum-rushed the Capitol to challenge the certification of the results from the fair U.S. Democratic presidential election in November. They falsely believe President Donald Trump won. 
Now, other Chicagoans are outing those insurgents on social media to hold them accountable for their actions. WBEZ's Maria Inez Zamudia reports. Josephine Janosak-Lischinski watched in horror what she described as a failed coup d'etat. She couldn't sleep that night after watching violent white riders storm the Capitol. Some carried Confederate flags or wore symbols of white supremacy. I woke up the next morning and I went actually on Facebook and there were these like neighborhood groups that I'm a part of and people were posting call out. The 30-year-old decided she would help by identifying insurgents from Chicago. This is a similar tactic anti-racist used to identify white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville, Virginia back in 2017. So she got to work. The Albany Park resident quickly found videos and photos. She was particularly upset about one post from a Chicago woman. Libby Andrews, the real estate agent's caption comes to mind about her glass of champagne after storming the Capitol. Like that is very clear language about how they viewed this. Andrews posted a video where she eagerly explained what happened on Wednesday. Hey everyone. So I was just at the Capitol and I stormed the Capitol and I made it to the top and I have pictures which I'll post on top and everywhere and great videos and everything and actually it was a lot of fun. The 53-year-old can be seen in photos smiling in the crowds and talking to others during a Facebook Live. Janasak Leschinski outed Andrews. Ad properties fired her. Even if people like Andrews didn't violently ransack the Capitol, activists say the event was not a political rally. It was an effort planned for months to stop Joe Biden from being president. These Trump mobs carried guns. They broke the law. They incited violence. So far, few have been arrested. One CEO from a northwest Chicago suburb now faces federal charges. He's been fired. The activist wasn't behind outing him, but she says business owners should be held accountable. Someone who's deciding to own a business and run a business, you have a uh, responsibility to support the people who's, who you're paying. Janasak Liszczynski has outed other Chicagoans, including several tattoo artists from Inside Tattoo in Chicago's Wicker Park neighborhood, who posted photos from outside the Capitol. The owner of Chicago's best barbershop in Logan Square posted photos and videos. When I called him, he hung up on me. And two tank noodle owners joined efforts to overturn the election in Trump's favor. I didn't expect it to blow up. Like within 15 minutes, it was just like basically going viral. Since then, Janasak Liszczynski says she's gotten death threats. I'm scared. I'd rather I have a target in my back than someone else, honestly. Um, I'm in a better position. I'm privileged. I'm much more privileged to be in a safe position. When like I was afraid to be in my apartment, I had somewhere else to go. So I'm grateful for that. She says she's taking a break this weekend, but she'll continue to out insurgents next week. Marina Samudio, WBEZ News. Hello, sir. I'm Officer Callaway. I'm here to... Uh, I didn't see nothing. Uh, I don't know nothing. Right. Cheers. Uh, uh, Granddad really didn't know anything about the break-ins, but his unwillingness to talk with the police is a common trait with black people. Federal investigators say they expect hundreds of criminal cases to be filed after last week's deadly riot at the Capitol. The people who took part in that pro-Trump march and the violence that followed also face a fierce backlash from the public. Some have lost jobs. Others face condemnation in their communities. A few have even received death threats. NPR's Brian Mann has been looking into this and joins us now. And first, Brian, we've been hearing details about some of the individuals, but give us a better sense of the people who took part in this riot. 
Yeah, it, it was a really wide range of, of pro-Trump supporters, Tanya. Some clearly fully radicalized militia groups, white supremacists. Those people came with firearms. One man brought Molotov cocktails. Others brought the kind of zip ties you use to handcuff people. Uh, there's video of rioters, of course, assaulting police officers, really brutal and frightening. And the DOJ says those are the individuals who will face the most serious criminal charges. But we've also learned people were there uh, who broke into the Capitol uh, came from all kinds of backgrounds. NPR has identified business executives, an attorney, a stay-at-home mom, a, a local public official. Mm. Many of them uh, were making really militant remarks as they marched toward the Capitol. Uh, Jenna Ryan is a Trump supporter who sells real estate in Texas. This is from a live stream she posted that day on Facebook. And you know what? If it comes down to war, guess what? I'm going to be there. Yep, I'll be fighting on the front lines because I'm that kind of girl. And Ryan later posted a photo of herself on Twitter next to a smashed window at the Capitol. I should say Ryan didn't respond to NPR's efforts to ask her questions. In fact, a lot of folks we tried to contact didn't respond. Others told us they wouldn't talk. And many of them, Tanya, have been busy scrubbing their social media feeds since last Wednesday, deleting Twitter and, and Facebook accounts. Okay, scrubbing their social media feeds, is that likely to work? I mean, can these people just go home, delete what happened that day and put it behind them? Yeah, not going to happen, says the FBI. A lot of these folks left clear digital trails showing what they were up to that day. And in response, many members of the public have been working together to identify rioters from clues on social media. Uh, Steve D'Antuono, head of the FBI's Washington, D.C. field office, talked to reporters about this yesterday. We have received more than 100,000 pieces of digital media, which is absolutely fantastic. And we are scouring every one for investigative and intelligence leads. And with that much evidence out there, the Justice Department is encouraging people who were there at the Capitol that day to go ahead and turn themselves in. And some people have been doing just that. Mm. As, I, as I mentioned, some rioters um, have already faced some personal consequences uh, for these actions. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, some of it's pretty intense. The town of Troy, New Hampshire, had to shut its government offices after the local police chief who was at the Trump rally started getting death threats. He, he says he didn't take part in the violence that day. Other people who were at the Capitol have lost their jobs. Uh, Brad uh, Rextalis, who was president and CEO of a tech company in the Chicago area, his company has confirmed in a statement that he was fired after being arrested. Rick Stallis put out a statement acknowledging he joined the pro-Trump crowd who went into the building. He called it, quote, the single worst personal decision of my life. Other companies in Maryland and Texas have confirmed they, too, fired employees who, who entered the Capitol that day. Hmm. Brian, so many people were, were there that day. I mean, a lot of people have this question. How does the FBI decide where to focus its resources and who's most dangerous? Yeah, it's a really big challenge, Tanya, again, because so many people who were there that day were making such threatening and, and violent remarks. Uh, again, here's the FBI's Steve D'Antuono. Which of the individuals saying despicable things on the Internet are just practicing keyboard bravado or they actually have the intent to do harm? So the FBI is working to sort that out. But what is clear is that many Trump supporters crossed a very mm -hmm. serious line when they breached mm -hmm. the Capitol's defenses and could yep. face very serious costs going forward. NPR's Brian Mann. Thank you. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we 
that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Local officials and law enforcement are preparing for what could be a violent week at state capitals across the country. There have been warnings from the FBI and others after a mob smashed their way into the U.S. Capitol last week. They've said that armed right-wing extremists could potentially try something similar in states ahead of President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. Three of the states where authorities have sounded the alarm loudly are Oregon, Michigan, and Virginia. So we're joined by reporters in each of those places to talk about what may be ahead. Dirk Vanderhart joins us from Oregon Public Broadcasting. Abigail Sinski joins us from member station WKAR in Lansing, Michigan. And Whitney Evans joins us from member station VPM in Richmond, Virginia. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, let's start with you, Whitney. What are officials in Virginia looking out for there? Yeah, again, I'm in the state capitol here in Richmond, and it's been difficult to get a sense of of what sources in these online forums are saying is planned in Virginia and who's expected to show up in the coming days. Um, The information we've seen is is really kind of conflicting, and many of these fringe groups, as you know, have been kicked off of social media platforms. Um, But there are already expected to be large crowds um, because of a pro-gun rally scheduled for Monday. It actually Mm -hmm. happens every year and generally without incident. But it tends to draw some people from right-wing extremist groups. Uh, Members of the far right and anti-government groups like Proud Boys have attended that rally in the past. Yeah, and this is Dirk in Oregon. You know, we haven't heard many details either about what the demonstrations might look like, but... Far-right demonstrators have gathered repeatedly at the state capitol in Salem in recent weeks. The the most serious incident took place on December 21st when a crowd showed up to demand entry into the capitol, which has been closed. And, and at one point, a Republican lawmaker appears to have purposely allowed those demonstrators in via a side door, which set off a physical clash between state police and protesters. At, at one point, officers were maced, folks were assaulted. And and just more generally, I would say this is part of the country that has seen its share of anti-government extremism, and people see that thread continuing in recent events. Mm -hmm. We definitely saw so much of that as well over the summer. Abigail, Michigan has been at the center as well of several politically charged protests. What are the concerns ahead of Biden's inauguration there? Yeah, as you mentioned earlier this year, armed men stood over state lawmakers in the state Senate chamber, and of course, 
There was an alleged plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So there's a lot of concern going into this weekend and next week. This week, our Capitol Commission did ban long guns from the building, but our Attorney General, Dana Nessel, has not been shy about saying that doesn't make the building secure at all. This is what she said on CNN earlier this week. We don't have anybody to even check if you do have a license. We have no metal detectors. So if you were to bring an explosive device into the Capitol, if you were to bring multiple weapons, as long as they're underneath a a coat or a jacket or in a bag, no one would ever know about it. Like the AG said there, security is light, especially during session, and lawmakers are scheduled to meet three days next week. Okay, so I want to ask all of you this question. What what kind of security changes with all of this in light are happening to to keep people safe? Dirk, how are authorities there preparing? Well, you know, it's notable to hear Abigail talk about Michigan's capital because there's a, a very similar story here. Since protesters got into the state house in December, state leaders have been taking safety extremely seriously. Uh, on Wednesday, the governor activated the National Guard in order to secure the Capitol from potential protests. Then just yesterday, we learned that the legislature is going to effectively postpone the start of the legislative session. They had been expected to meet Tuesday. Now they're going to push back hearings until after the inauguration. And, you know, I mentioned earlier a Republican who had let demonstrators into the Capitol. There has been swift discipline in that case. He could face expulsion in the legislature and potential criminal charges. Oh, wow. Abigail, what about there in Michigan? Well, a six-foot fence is being put up around the Capitol building today. We've already seen an increased police presence, and that will stick around for the next couple of weeks. Officials have said there's been constant coordination with the National Guard, local and state police. But a lot of this planning has also been happening off of mainstream social media. So there are federal and local law enforcement that are kind of tracking that chatter, but they have not said anything about credible threats of violence. Whitney Evans here in Richmond. Uh, Compared to Michigan and Oregon, Virginia's state government buildings and Capitol building are actually pretty secure to to the point that it's, it's often a pain as a reporter to move in and out, and it's only gotten tighter over the last year. Uh, They already use metal detectors for entry into buildings, and most of the doors stay locked. Um, Aside from that, they're putting up barricades and uh, closing roads around the Capitol. Also interesting to note that uh, those buildings will be mostly empty because lawmakers are meeting virtually and at another location because of COVID. Governor Ralph Northam said Thursday that the state is prepared and won't tolerate violence or mutiny. If you're planning to come here, are up to Washington with ill intent in your heart, you need to turn around right now and go home. And again, Governor Northam, he said in terms of police presence, local and state law enforcement have a a unified presence here in the city along with the National Guard. Okay, a unified presence in the city of Richmond. This is important because, you know, I'm actually familiar with Lansing, Michigan, Abigail, State capitals are also where people live. I'm thinking about other parts of the city. Have authorities at any of the places where you all are talked about citywide plans to keep people safe? Abigail. Yeah. So I talked to a city council president who's been in frequent conversation with our chief of police, and he said he's confident that the city will stay safe and that the peace will be kept this weekend. The thinking behind planning is that they don't want to wake up Monday morning and say, we could have done more. 
Mm-hmm. Dirk. Yeah, you know, the focal point really has been the Capitol in the recent demonstrations we've seen. I think to the extent people have citywide concerns, that has more been focused on Portland, where obviously there has been a lot of unrest in the last year, and that will continue as well in coming days. We're talking with Dirk Vanderhart from Oregon Public Broadcasting, Abigail Sinski with member station WKAR in Michigan, and Whitney Evans with member station VPM in Virginia about safety at state capitals ahead of next week's inauguration of of President-elect Joe Biden. Thanks to you all. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, January 16, 2021. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, suggestions to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. All of that said, man, uh, so... The counter-racist grind continues. Uh, we have been on every day this week, except for Monday. Uh, we were here Tuesday. Uh, we had uh, Patrick J. McKenna continuing with our uh, O.J. Simpson studies. Uh, we have the book club and all that, but uh, the investigator for Mr. Simpson, who found the Furman tapes, was with us Tuesday. Wednesday, we had Muhammad Abdul Rahim first time we've had a non-white guest on the program in I don't know it's been a long time almost six months uh I said we would have every once in a while but it was not going to be a common thing white guests only but we did have uh Muhammad Abdul Rahim he was with us Wednesday uh we talked about Miriam Carey's uh 2013 murder and contrasted uh the lethal force uh used by Capitol Police and U.S. Secret Service Uh, as opposed to what we saw last week, white treasonous terrorists. Thursday, we had the book club, started the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. Fascinating study session. I'm so excited. Looking forward for next Thursday already. Uh, Neutralizing workplace racism yesterday. Obviously, we're here today. Tomorrow, we will be here for the global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, I'm eager to speak with non-white people in different parts of the world uh, tomorrow afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, Certainly, we will eagerly await their thoughts on the terrorist activity in the Capitol last week, see how that was reported in different parts of the world, how things have been discussed subsequently over there, Uh, and then also to talk about the Rona situation. Uh, They instituted new, stricter 
lockdown measures in different parts of Europe, uh, check on the vaccine, just lots of things happening in the world, the whole Brexit situation, lots to check on. So that'll be tomorrow, uh, non-white victims of white supremacy, global Sunday talk. Uh, and then we'll be here on Monday, uh, Dotsie Bosk. Uh, she is an Olympic athlete and is a vegan, practicing vegan, does a lot of talks uh, about the importance of nutrition, taking care of yourself, non-dairy diet options, and even tying that to racism uh, with how non-white people, black people in particular, are often restricted. They make it really difficult for us to get quality foods and the dairy component where they will stuff all kinds of dairy this and milk that on cheese this uh, on black people, non-white people. And a lot of us are lactose intolerant, don't even have the ability to properly digest uh, all of those fatty, unhealthful, toxic foods. Uh, so that'll be Monday and white woman. So we'll be back to white guests, but staying on the counter racist grind. Uh, and we might even have uh, Alan Dershowitz. OJ Simpson. Now I inquired about speaking to him because we're doing our OJ Simpson. He was on the OJ Simpson defense team. However, we started this whole study session on Jeffrey Tubin's work, not because Gus T. Renegade wanted to cape for OJ Simpson, but because Jeffrey Tubin zoom bomber of 2020. That's why we started reading run of his life. Uh, and so Adam Dershowitz, who we, the Jeffrey Epstein case, that is also something that people all over the world have been discussing. Uh, so he is involved. He was one of Mr. Epstein's uh, homies and legal counsel. And he was also accused uh, by one of these young women, young white women uh, that, you know, he was engaged in all of this underage sexual intercourse and all the rest of it. So lots to chat about. And I think he was even defending president Trump's impeachment. Uh, lots to chat about there, but I mean, yeah, that was the impetus was, OJ Simpson. He was right there on the uh, defense team. So we might even have Alan Dershowitz. We will have uh, an exemplary OJ Simpson catalog with the book club and then all of the subsequent guests. Listen, check out the archives. All right, next. Um, in all of the hubbub about what happened at the Capitol, I saw a report here in Washington State where they had a number of Seattle enforcement officers who are accused of having been a part of the fracas. Now, Seattle, Washington is it's about 3000 miles from Washington, D.C. I was there this summer like it is no that is not a short trip like that's one you have to plan a little bit. I think I had I had a direct flight from Seattle to Washington. I think I left uh, at approximately 8 a.m. this summer for the retreat touchdown. Uh, in Washington, I think it was about four o'clock, something in that area. Uh, so it is, you know, this is not a, oh, hey, I think I'd like to hang out in D.C. for a little while. Like, no, <laughs> like this has to be well thought out in advance. I've planned it, got it together. Like, yeah, not some. Oh, I just think I'm going to wake up and uh, head out to uh, Washington, D.C. for a whole afternoon lunch like 3,000 miles to go and engage in total barbarism and savagery. Like, are you serious? 
So then I saw that article first that they had Seattle enforcement officers who engaged in all of this, you know, ridiculousness, excuse me, terrorism. Uh, And then I saw that it was widespread. It wasn't just, you know, oh, man, it's just these one or two enforcement officials in Seattle uh, that they got. Let me just get the report here uh, that it's widespread, that there are large numbers of enforcement officers and uh, military personnel uh, who are accused of having participated in all of this. So I'll pull up. They had a number of reports. I'm just going to see if I can grab the NPR report really quick off-duty police officers investigated charged with participating in capital riot nearly 30 sworn police officers from a dozen departments attended the pro-trump rally at the u.s capitol last week and several stormed the building with rioters and are facing federal criminal charges as well as possible expulsion or other discipline the officers are from departments large and small there was veteran officer in houston uh, the nation's eighth largest department, the sergeant in the small town of Rocky Mountain, Virginia, the coon man, and a group of Philadelphia transit officers. Five people were killed in the riots, including Capitol Officer Brian Sicknick and Trump supporter Ashley Babbitt, who was shot by an officer when she attempted to breach a barricaded door inside the Capitol. Houston police officer Tam Fan, an 18-year veteran, resigned Thursday in wake of federal charges against him. Houston Chief Art Agveto said in a tweet, photos emerged showing fam inside the Capitol during the riots holding a Trump flag alongside other pro-Trump extremists. Federal prosecutors are investigating. Now, I think, or I would hope that that gives a whole new, well, wait a minute, let's see. In Virginia, photos emerged showing Rocky Mountain Police Sergeant, Sarge, uh, Police Sergeant T.J. Robertson and Officer Jacob Fracker inside the Capitol with other rioters. Robertson told the Roanoke Times that he and Officer Fracker did nothing illegal. What are you doing in the Capitol? Where I was at, there was no violence. There was no fighting with police officers. Federal prosecutors say otherwise. whole new thought to the concept of race soldier now again this isn't even one of the better reports where they talked about it wasn't just enforcement officers it was enforcement officers and military personnel and they even had some photographs that seemed to show individuals who would be classified as white with paraphernalia gear clothing attire that would seem to suggest some sort of connection to military personnel now again they have all kinds of army surplus stores and all the rest and it's very popular to go and get that gear even if you haven't served so that could certainly be the case but it would not surprise me at all uh, if you have got a substantial number of individuals classified as white they've had all of those reports for so many I mean what would be surprising about that they've had so many reports about uh, the problem of white supremacists infiltrating the military law enforcement uh, to gain uh, expertise with explosives firearms for their militant activities that's been all the way back to 2009 when President Obama was uh, first elected so nothing strikes me as unbelievable or strange about that that's what I would expect within a system of white supremacy. Just make sure that component is added to all of the madness for the coming week. Next, uh, the report from PBS, there were a number. Uh, they had the report where they were talking about the so-called long haulers. 
these are people who are diagnosed with COVID-19 and then they ha- end up having some sort of long-term problems, uh, some sort of issue. Uh, they were talking about respiratory issues, circulatory issues, things of that nature happening to people, even once they have, you know, they're no, no longer testing positive uh, for COVID-19. Within that report, they talked to a number of different folks. Some of them or number one, this is audio. They didn't have video with this. Uh, they have some pictures with the report, but I was listening to the audio. So they don't have uh, video. Can't see everybody They talked to a female who seemed to identify that she was black shimmery Smith, C H I M E R E. And she talked about some of the difficulties that difficulties that she was having uh, before. And then she got to the end. There were a few parts, but she got to, Uh, the end of it and she said that she's gone through all these tests and she had times where doctors were telling her that it's all in her head that you're making up these symptoms uh, and there's nothing wrong with you that you're intimidating Uh, and we heard that before I remember we talked about the uh, black female doctor I think Dr. Sarah Jones where she recently passed away and she had made the video saying that she was getting racist treatment while she was in the hospital and then they responded after she died the white hospital officials responded and said, oh, she, we found her to be intimidating. Remember that one? So they talked to Shimmery Smith in this PBS report we heard today, and she gave some of the same reports. And then she got a little bit further down, and she said, uh, I don't want to be another, I don't want another black woman to go into a hospital with these symptoms that go on and on and on and seem so never ending and to be told that she's too smart to know about her own body or that she's too aggressive to take action on what happens to her health. I don't want that for anybody else. Uh, and then she continues. Let's see. Uh, so Stephanie Sai, she's doing the interviewing. Shimmery's persistence to find answers is paying off. A new diet. I put a highlight right there. A new diet. And I didn't give more details about what she was eating before and how things have changed. But man, oh man, Dr. Ruby Lathan, I spoke with her over this past weekend diet eating correctly is so critical to health i'm sure there are you know some other changes that she could make or what have you but drinking your water getting away from that dairy that's what we'll be talking about monday getting away from all that dairy and what have you more fresh fruits vegetables get your legumes your beans leave that processed food alone you will be doing much better i don't know if that's you know what shimmery smith did but i would hope so they said she got a new diet and medication regimen regimen is making her feel a little better shimmery smith one on my darkest days in the dark now that's one i hadn't even heard before look how they did this we this is the program for no metaphors right they said on my darkest days in the dark no light in my room at all when I couldn't even really see anything. I could not imagine a future for myself and now I actually can and I'm happy about that. Well this, and it goes back Stephanie Sai, interviewer. Well, this is a cliche too, but it sounds like it made you stronger. And then Shimmery Smith, girl, and then laughter. Uh, Don't have me crying over here. Yes, absolutely. Now, she's a victim of white supremacy. Shimmery Smith uh, she's guaranteed, you know, whatever stance uh, that she takes. And I mean, hey, if you got uh, if it seems like your health is getting back together, we can take care of yourself. Other folks that you care about and what have you. That is something to be happy about. All of that said, I have said for years, I think all the way back to when we read medical apartheid. And in fact, Bernelia Randall dying while black when she was on the program in 2009. Both of them said this sort of nonsense, this cliche. It sounds like this has made you stronger. 
that is absurd that's not even a good enough word for it that is malarkey of the highest order that's not a good enough word for it racism white supremacy really having a white person tell you oh my goodness slavery just made you all so strong you getting the rona just made you so strong you being in flint and having to go through an obstacle course to get a 16 ounce bottle of water has just made you so strong They didn't go say that to the white rioters and say, well, this whole experience, if you lost your job, got transferred and might be federally prosecuted. Has it made you stronger? They didn't say that. They only say that nonsense to black people where something that could kill you. Oh, it's made you so strong. We got this strong black woman, this strong black man It is absolute nonsense. Um, and then on the darkest day, yeah, 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 cliches. Uh, let's see next. mentioned the uh, water crisis I don't think I can recall a compensatory call in where I've heard the word accountable used as much as we did in the segments this week and then much less the word accountable used to describe white people I never hear that it's always we're going to hold that Al Sharpton accountable we're going to hold that Benjamin Crump accountable we're going to hold that Jesse Jackson accountable we're going to hold that no count Coon Obama I never hear we're going to hold a white person accountable. Of course, I don't know how a victim of white supremacy would hold a white person accountable, whatever that means in the system. But I did find it fascinating. We will have to see. I seriously doubt if they mean some of the white people who are responsible for the chemical chemical and biological warfare that took place in Flint, Michigan, if they mean, will some of these folks be criminally prosecuted? No, I don't think that's going to happen. We'll have to wait and see. I could be totally in error, but I don't think that's going to happen. If they mean seriously prosecuting the folks who went to Washington, D.C. last week, if they mean prosecuting these folks as treasonous traitors and terrorists domestic if I start seeing some charges for domestic terrorism then maybe I would consider wow we got accountability in 2021 like yes I will be all for using the word accountability but until then no and certainly not for holding other black people accountable that's Next, uh, we are listener supported counter racist radio. It will be a dozen years next month. Not really sure how to feel about that either way. Either we've been more or less constructive uh, for 12 years or we have wasted time and contributed to the problem. Uh, Certainly make sure you are not just the listening because you've been listening for you know a few weeks or a few months or a few years or whatever it is with everything that is happening in the world crises on top of crises we victims of white supremacy do not have time to waste if you are tuning in to the context of white supremacy live or archives make sure you are getting constructive information on what white supremacy racism is how it works, what we can be doing to solve this problem immediately. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. You can hit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, my review for Isabel Wilkerson's case is the most recent post. We read that in the book club, second worst book ever. You can check that out. 
and or invest PayPal button is at the top right corner. Uh, also on cash app, cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Uh, much obliged to all the folks who have supported and kept us on the air for those dozen years. I hope we have helped some folks, uh, helped victims get a better understanding of what the system is, how it works. We're also on Amazon, the wish list, Gus T renegade much obliged to all the folks who have nabbed items over the years super super appreciated uh let's see next the this was also on pbs the report where they talked about the education disparities as a result of the rona shutting down schools and things having to be virtual we just had i do not have offspring we just had uh, a number of parents on neutralizing workplace racism yesterday uh, evening who talked about, hey, uh, I have offspring and I see how this is impact impacting black children in so many different components. Even if you have uh, a young scholar, uh, we have a number of them, our young fellow out in New England. But even if you have a young scholar, hey. Being away from school, it, it's so much more than just, oh, okay, we're going to come in and do a little calculus. Oh, okay, we'll do a little physics. It's so much more than that. Uh, and missing out on that and being all isolated and stuck where you have to be in front of a screen for an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, we had a number of folks uh, who were parents uh, who were talking about the impact that they've seen with their children and how they're making an effort to check in on their mental health uh, and just doing things to talk to them, try to encourage them, activities to get them up and away from that computer screen, get outside. <clears throat> Had to sneeze, excuse me. But doing things to get them uh, up, get them outside, get them moving, that sort of thing, get some socializing going on. All of that is super important. If you think you, as an older person, uh, have been stressed, impacted, by everything revolving the Rona, do not think for an instant that all of that stress and strife has missed your offspring or younger black people that you are uh, around. So really make sure uh, to the degree that you can invest some time checking in on them, seeing how they are doing, uh, ask and uh, show them a, a little extra care. Uh, if possible, this has been rough on everyone. Uh, let's see next uh, the whole uh, bit on we had so many different components about technology the use of technology to ban some of the rioters the use of technology to go after some of the rioters uh, the use of technology to make a global database of probably non-white people uh, it was so many different components uh, to the technology I would just think that as more of this advances it is all going to be used to strengthen this system. I'm very sure since they say they got so many bias problems with their facial recognition, since it was white terrorists out in DC, that means it should be perfect, right? You should have no problem. Get the video footage and just get cracking. Oh, bam, that's Betty Sue and bam, 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 bam. And just get to identifying and prosecuting. That's all you have to do, right? That word accountable again, will we'll see what happens. Incidentally, I did see a number of reports. Shout to uh, Pamela Evans Harris. Missed. 
uh, in the interracial con game. She quotes a segment from the cows. We had Barbara Trepanier on the program some years back and she transcribes a portion of that interview. And she talks about how white people do not snitch. Uh, they do not rat out other white people. Uh, hey, my, my brother was practicing racism or my uncle knows more nigger jokes than you can count. Like they don't do that sort of thing. I pointed out a few times where you do see it like, whoa, that is an anomaly. Like other than President Trump, you do not hear other white people. This person is a racist. And I know because I'm white. That doesn't happen. There was a little bit of that even this week. They had some white people who ratted, did exactly that. Like, oh, man, that's my uncle. That's my mom. That's my dad. They were down in D.C. and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and even that as I don't care if they're ratting out their parents and uncles and relatives or whomever else, they are still on the racist suspect list. I think some of the folks who did some of this ratting people out might have had ulterior motives. Uh, I think one of them was a white woman. Uh, she snitched on some of her parents uh, and other family members. She's engaged in so-called lesbianism, uh, LGBTQ and, and all the rest of it. And I think her parents or some of her so-called relatives may have had an issue with that. So I think this member, well, hey, you don't like my sexual activity. We will rat you out as being racist. Lots of different things. There's no reason any of these white people, not that it's, this has become a whole movement, but there's no reason at all that any of these folks should be thought of as, oh my, this is the new Jane Elliott. This is the new Jane Brown, new John Brown, new Heather Hare, willing to sacrifice all in the net. Get out of here. Uh, the number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. This broadcast, again, no metaphors. Now, victim of racism, Shimmery Smith. And this is why I say, like, let's be really mindful about what we say, because a lot of times if you're not really thinking about what words am I selecting to articulate my views, when we just kind of mindlessly pick these metaphors, they will support white supremacy racism. They will enforce concepts and ideas that disparage the color black and or black people and or both on my darkest days in the dark, no light in my room at all. When I couldn't even really see anything, I could not imagine a future for myself. That is common darkness, blackness, vile, evil, no future. The metaphors, this isn't even the metaphor of the week. The metaphor, when we had Patrick J. McKenna on the program on Tuesday, he said, O.J. Simpson is just like George Floyd. Mark Furman tried to put his knee on O.J. Simpson's neck. I said, wow, metaphors. I'm so thankful we have a broadcast where... I talk about metaphors regularly. Now, most of my time on the planet, I have believed OJ Simpson was guilty. So some, anybody white person, non-white person, anyone using a met. In fact, if I had heard that metaphor in May, when this Mr. Floyd was murdered, then if someone had said, Oh yeah, OJ Simpson is just like George Floyd. 
I would have been appalled. Like, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, OJ, feverish OJ Simpson is George Floyd? What? What are you talking about? Mark Furman put his knee on. I would have been furious. Uh, I would have totally considered that like disparaging George Floyd uh, and what happened to him and how he was killed to even compare such a person and blah, 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 and all of that. Just reading Mr. Tubin's work with the book study and getting a more accurate, detailed understanding of Mr. Simpson. Yes, it is a metaphor. It is an accurate comparison. Mr. McKenna said Mark Furman tried to put his knee on O.J. Simpson's neck. Yes, accurate. But that is why I encourage people. You should really investigate those metaphors because it may not. And it may be that that is wrong. It might be absolutely that Gus T is cooning. Gus T doesn't know what he's talking about. And that is totally blasphemous and should not be compared is totally uh, disparaging what happened to Mr. Floyd. If anybody, if you think that is the case, star six, one. But again, no metaphor, so we don't have a chance for any type of confusion. Just be direct and explicit with what we want to say. Frequently, white people, they are practicing racism. They will invoke these metaphors. And uh, oh, getting the Rona has just made you stronger, didn't it? They will just invoke cliches and tacky metaphors and that sort of thing to practice racism. Victims of white supremacy, myself included, we have been exposed to this misconduct for centuries, decades. We are still learning. Sometimes we don't have all the logic to articulate our views. So for this broadcast, if you need more time to think about your word choice, that's always allowed. However, if we cannot use metaphors, analogies, similes, be exact, precise, direct with what you want to say, that would be appreciated. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, whatever it is, that would be great. Uh, Make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak. Uh, And then once everyone has spoken, if you have an additional comment or thought, uh, you can return and share your additional thoughts. Uh, Again, we'll be here tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, Global Sunday Talk. Looking forward to checking in with victims in different parts of the planet. Uh, With that, let's see. Uh, first few folks who dialed in, if you have questions, thoughts to share, uh, lines should be open. Uh, feel free. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, best greetings, callers and listeners. Um, first off, the nightlife uh, parties going on in L.A. They're also going on here in New York City as well. Um, the sheriff's department shut some down late November last year as well. Um, also staying on the, the legal side, uh, the attorney general, I believe her name is Letitia um, James, filed a lawsuit against the NYPD for using excessive force against Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, I think it was just done this Wednesday, so I'm kind of curious to see how this unfolds. I don't really see anything coming out of it, but um, we'll, we'll see how it unfolds. And it's also against the mayor, um, not only the NYPD, but also against the mayor as well. Um, and just a, a, cute, a few things technology-wise, for people, because um, you had a lot of information in regards to technology on this broadcast. 
one of some things that people can actually do to just maintain some kind of security on their home network. Um, one is to just kind of get a, an understanding of how many devices are actually on your home network. Um, if you create a small little list, then afterwards go into the router, figure out what the router password is actually, change the actual original password and change the router name. Um, and then when you log into the router, you will see a full list of all the actual devices that are on there. And if any device does not match the list that you have, look into it. Um, and if it's not supposed to be there, remove it. Um, that's some of the basics. And uh, But there, there is obviously more, but I don't want to get too deep into that. Um, going on to the next thing, I, I um, finally was successful with food with the family household, uh, vegan dishes. Uh, I went and had a Caribbean cookbook and made a vegan soup uh, with um, butternut squash, sweet yams, regular plain yams, potatoes, um, carrots, everything. And for once, like my whole family devoured it. So that worked out great. And I, I made another dish, which I made a vegan roti dish. Um, again, the same kind of uh, mixture, but almost you have to create a paste along with the roti bread. And uh, that, that came out well as well. So getting successful with making some of these vegan dishes to um, eliminate some of the heavy dairy and meat consumptions in my household. That's been um, a, one of the highlights so far this year. Um, now I just need to, to, to make sure we can be consistent with it and keep these meal plans up. Um, one question, Gus, who I missed the individual that you said would be on on Monday. Well, who's this person that's going to be on? Make sure, <clears throat> make sure I'm pronouncing Dotsy Boskin. Bosch, I think that's how you say it. We'll double. I'll double check for. I'll double check for uh, Monday to make sure I have the accurate pronunciation. But yes, Dots, uh, Dotsy Bosch, B A U S C H. We'll see. But she's a cyclist, advocate, speaker, wow. executive director of the nonprofit Switch for Good, uh, and big time advocate for all the vegan. No dairy. Maybe she'll have some tips on, uh, you know, putting all that dairy stuff down and how to continue to share with family members. But yes, she has her own website, Dotsy Boschk, Plant Powered Athlete. Uh, you can check it out and see what she has to say. All right. Appreciate it. Congratulations. Hey. Yes, sir. Congratulations. Very uh, excited to hear continue i remember before you said they were pushing back uh about the vegan like getting them to be excited about it like there's so many things like uh caribbean cookbooks and it just depends on what you like to eat uh if you're in the asian cuisine that's easy like it's tons of stuff a lot of that is really heavy veggie based anyway so just get a cookbook and explore have fun uh and you can make veggie eating really really delicious like it should not be something where people are like oh man our house is is vegan and we just suffer every meal time you know we just have steamed carrots and raw 
cauliflower <laughs> and broccoli and oh dad is the worst I hate it back in the good old days we get Cheetos and McDonald's like, it doesn't have to be that at all it can be total excitement every time with the soups and pizza or smoothies or whatever whatever you're you know attempting to eat it can be and should be absolutely yummy every time down for meals uh, let's see mm-hmm. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have comments, if we have parents who uh, are dealing with the whole, I guess, uh, issue of making sure your children are taken care of healthy and well, that is uh, appreciated as well. Again, I don't have children, so I can't really speak to that directly. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, proceed. Uh, Can I be heard? I got- Oh, uh, sir, you can you can go ahead, sir. I'll, I'll just wait. Thank you, sir. Uh, DCS program. We had a uh, session today. Uh, we uh, continue to put uh, emphasis on safety uh, of. Uh, the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, it is uh, very much regarded uh, with the program. Uh, and uh, we seem to have very good cooperation with the uh, parent and or supervisors of the uh, young people that uh, that they bring into the program, the parents, you know, gives pretty good, uh, pretty good assistance uh, in that venture of the COVID-19 safety uh, requirements. And uh, uh, we have about uh, the number, the numbers have went down a little bit uh, over from when uh, the program first started this session anyway last year but it still you know goes pretty smooth uh today today uh and what we have been focusing on is to instead of us quote unquote lecturing uh the the young people uh in the in the familiar eurocentric like means of uh study in education where this one person in the front of a quote unquote class would be reading or stating something for a time frame and whatever that that information is, you know, on limited basis and whatnot. And the old whole idea is that the uh, recipient, which is the students, basically uh that's the only level of uh, knowledge and understanding. So basically what, what we try to do, we may start a subject matter and have the young guys to report on what they think about things, what they think about that particular incident or what do they think about this particular uh, subject matter. Uh, and we would keep it going by, asking questions by asking them questions. Uh, for instance, to, today, uh, I asked them about uh, the George Floyd incident. And I 
twist it around by asking them, well, what would be your code? What would be your code? And, uh, and I, and each, each participant is required to stand up and speak to everybody about what they think that their, their code would be. Uh, and in order to keep them from being shy about it, I would emphasize where your, your opinion, uh, is your opinion and we're not going to quote unquote, tell you, you are absolutely incorrect on it. You know, glad to make a person shy about stating, stating things. And, uh, so the whole idea would be to, you know, listen to what they have to say and then ask questions from it. And, uh, you know, it was some interesting, uh, ideas. Some of them were, uh, to be expected, uh, such as, uh, uh, I would ask what, what did you, uh, stop me for, and if I didn't get a right answer, I would I would uh, either walk away or take off running, something like that. And then you know that's where I would ask questions about the running part or taking off or that sort of thing. You know, such as, well, what do you expect the outcome to be <laughs> when you would do when you would make that reaction, and just and don't help me with the answer, you know that sort of thing. Uh, and then they would, you know, start, then it would be a process of, to, uh, learn, you know, some things, uh, film wise, uh, because, uh, Monday would be the, uh, national identification of the anniversary of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birth. It's not his birthday. His birthday was back in 1929, uh, but it would be the anniversary that is designated as his uh, uh, birth day. Uh, we uh, kind of like broke the chronolo chronological uh, order of things that I had been doing with Eyes on the Prize and went to some segments uh, involving him in this uh, uh, quest to neutralize the system of racism, white supremacy. And... Uh, had a pretty good day. Had a pretty good day. And uh, that's my report. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, thank you, victim, for yielding, sir. Uh, thank you very much, Gus. Uh, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate the retired firefighter. Back when I was a young, well, I don't want to use any metaphors. Back when I was younger, I wanted to be a firefighter, but at the time I didn't have anybody to like mentor me because I actually really needed it. And um, every time I think about the retired firefighter, sometimes he calls um, he calls uh, Mr. Fuller's show, and he always asks questions that are like really thought provoking. I would really want to encourage other calls listeners to actually call a Mr. Fuller's show too sometimes if you can because it helps to make the discussions more broader and then you have people who are codified. And um, also I wanted to say um, something about, jeez, um, I actually forgot what I was going to say, but I really wanted to say what I wanted to say about the retired father Fred. I really appreciate him. Thank you. Thank you. 
much obliged victim of racism. Uh, let's see. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks uh, that we missed totally, if you have a hand up and we've not heard from you at all, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Folks are getting their thoughts together, I guess, maybe sulking about the last few days of the Trump administration. Uh, again, we'll be here uh, tomorrow for our global Sunday talk. Monday, Dotsy Bosch. I have to double check to see about Mr. Dershowitz uh, because that might even be Wednesday. So we might have a brief interim uh, on Tuesday and then be right back. But I have to double check, uh, double check to confirm uh, if that Wednesday uh, date and time will be uh, sufficient for everyone but moving through all of that uh, let's see the report on oh I forgot there were a number of reports that I did not play that I did think were important from this week but you can't play everything Uh, the report about the violence leading up to the inauguration this week. That's another one that I thought was appalling. If they had any idea, let's say it was black lives matter. The, what is it? The in not effing around or whatever it is, not effing around group. If they were planning to go to DC, the black identity, pick any organization you want. Even if it was cows, let's say it was, uh, we were going to do a, a rowdy counter racist yoga retreat in DC for the inauguration. And they had notions that, Oh man, Gus and these folks might come here and get really radical, you know, stir up some trouble for Biden and folks. You don't tell me you're going to be this lackluster. I like, Ooh, just have to be on alert. We'll have to see. They would be making a re- You talk about no knock, uh, search warrants and such like, Oh my God, like Cointel pro two O or point two point O three point O, whatever you want to call it. Like it would be total, uh, by any means necessary whatever needs to be done to secure our democracy safety make sure that no more lawlessness vandalism takes place that would be the response not wow hopefully things will go well we're on high alert we'll have to see regarding social media like come on uh incidentally again i would not be in the dc area i know we have folks uh the dmb area I would not be at the inauguration. I would not want to be in the D.C. area unless I had to be there for like work purposes, school purposes, whatever the case may be. If it's not that, no thanks. Uh, I would expect all kinds of armed white people. If it's enforcement officers, military personnel, protesters, proud boys, whatever it is, I would expect lots of that and if I am not there knowing my code I can handle all of that easily if that's not the case I am good Uh, let's see folks get their thoughts together yet still spectating caller in Florida yes sir yes sir thank you very much sir greetings to the host the listeners and callers um yeah, I definitely agree with that, the uh, difference in response, because of the footage that I've been seeing 
from the various uh, news stations. Uh, just, I don't know, just by my observation, it just feels like they just show <laughs> the, uh, the, I guess, what, that's National Guards people, a lot of them white men, just laying down like they're taking a nap, uh, not taking it seriously. You know, I'm thinking, I'm correlating that to, they know, the threat and the target that they've been asked to uh, be faced with is uh, white people. And there was another segment where the guy, he was being totally surrounded. They had a, you know, as many people on the line may have seen uh, a white guy, I guess a um, law enforcement official, trapped in a door screaming for help or whatever, you know, there was one guy who said, you know, I was about to uh, take out my gun, firearm, and I was going, I could have killed a lot of them or something to that nature. But, you know, I had to sit and think. Uh, it would have proven them right. It would have justified. I'm like, wow. <laughs> he actually, uh, you know, he, he stayed with the, the racist code and still find a way to rationalize the... Uh, the, the hostility that they came with that day. Um, and, I, and I also heard on the audio segment because I heard also people were trying to just say it's just white men. Yeah, it might be a lot, a large portion of white men. But hey, that, that Jenna Ryan lady, I think that was her. I was saying if, it, if it's going to be a war, I'm going to be right in the front line, right in the front line. So. I mean, they're showing that dedication, and they are heavily involved in different professions. Uh, real estate, some of them are in law enforcement, military, and they have all of these different groups, Oath Keepers, and uh, I don't even know if they mentioned that alt-right, Richard Spencer, all of that pretty much in the same category. Boogaloo and things like that. Uh, yeah, they, they don't seem to be as alert. Uh, as they were thinking about Black Lives Matter, and I just I saw one that ended out. They just had a um, one of those ankle bracelet things on a guy. I guess he was from around in my area, and it didn't look like he pretty much got a, a serious punishment, like some kind of a misdemeanor. He may have gotten fired or whatever, but they you know they still uh, classified as white. They have uh, a complete um, group of uh, white people that are the backup support to help them get out of any kind of serious trouble. So definitely something to keep in mind of. And thank you for the information shared. And I'll pass it on to the next person. Thank you. Much obliged. Caller in Florida. It is not white male supremacy. I think I had to point that out. I don't know if it was last week. It was recently. They just had one of those reports, same thing, talking about the uh, terrorism at the Capitol. And they said it was white men, armed white men, savage white men. And then they went right and talked to a white woman. Oh, yes. MAGA. We've got to do it. They stole the election. And they did the same thing this week. Now, I don't remember them saying that it was just white men. But exactly as he said, they went and talked to that white woman. 
I'm going to be on the front lines. Blood has to be shed. I'm right. Oh, come on. Come on. And I, it was repeated shots of that, of white women out there saying the, making the, with the exact same type of sentiment. I'm armed. I'm ready to roll. White men do not have to carry this burden uh, by themselves. Dedicate white men and white women. You can't have a system of racism, uh, white supremacy without equal participation from both parties. So I thought I thought that was supremely important throughout uh, all of this because they've done a really skillful job as they normally do of just isolating it and, and white men, white men. I've seen way too many pictures uh, of white men, even the former. She's about to be out of there. Uh, Senator Loeffler in Georgia. She was one of the ones uh, incur- matter of fact, I even saw a report this week. They were talking about Cla- justice, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Cowbell, that she was also one of the ones encouraging all of this. And, oh, they stole the erection. Get out there and make your voice heard. Speak out like white women have been a crucial supporter of Mr. Trump. And they have been a bottle cog in all of the madness. Probably will continue to be even, you know, as the inauguration goes on. I have to double check what day the uh, inauguration actually is. Uh, let's see if I can, unless we're already on uh, and doing something, uh, maybe we'll do some coverage, live coverage of the inauguration, especially if they, you know, cut a fool and there begins to be some violence or what have you. Maybe we'll uh, do a live broadcast, but I'll, I'll double check the date and time and all that. And we shall see. We did that for Obama. I don't think this will be nearly as entertaining. Uh, I was that was a blessed day for Gusty Renegade uh, watching Obama depart the White House like, wow. Do not get many jolly days on the plantation, but that was good times. I don't think it'll be that way this time around, uh, but we'll see. Other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have commentary, observations, lines should be open. Proceed. Do we not have are the parents spectating? I, I know I did say something about that. I cannot imagine that we have this many people tuning in and we have zero parents and or none of the parents checked in on the well-being of their children. I'm very certain I did ask that question before. Now, if that's just, you know, we don't care about that question. Gus moving on to other things. No problem. But I did think that was kind of important uh, mental and well-being of, you know, non-white offspring we had parents who did talk about that yesterday and i said there was going to be a clip on that today so is that is that correct either we have no parents or the parents that we do have don't care about that greetings gus yes sir uh ignorant parent here uh, what, what what was the uh the question that you have had for the, the parents ignorant host too. That. uh let's see the <laughs> question was uh for parents uh they we had a report today and then we had people actually brought it up voluntarily yesterday that they said man the whole 
uh, COVID situation has had a big impact, uh, non-constructive impact on our offspring. Uh, we're seeing it in their grades uh, where they were spectacular before making all A's and now their grades have dropped a little bit or they just seem a little down, depressed, where I can see it's having an impact on them, where they're not able to get up and go see their friends every day or having to stay in front of the screen. Uh, just have people seen how this mass disruption has impacted their children and what steps are we taking to try to check in on that, mitigate that to some degree? Okay. I, I I think I think that's why the program still the DCS program still uh operating for that very reason is that you have you have a core level of parents who are concerned about that. Uh because the the whole advent of the of the uh COVID uh, it, it probably affects their their child or children uh, in the in the uh, school, which is normally is something that you know once the the, the the child goes off to school and the parent goes off to work, you know the parent kind of like you know as a parent you you don't, you don't worry about so much the safety of your child and or the uh, the level of uh, social interaction. That that child has, if, if anything, it may it may it may be concerned of being it too much, <laughs> you know, as far as the social aspect, you know, without the pandemic. But uh, so that's why some of them probably still bring their child out there to that school. You know, schools are closed on Saturdays, but that school on on those Saturdays with their with their their, their child, or in some case, children. And even with even with my offspring, uh, uh, I uh, you know he and I have like a code where I constantly remind him of the uh, the advent. Of course, he's more sociable than I am. You know, with a big difference in age, and he has you know social interaction. He's about to leave the house now, uh, but I keep keep it a reminder of him as far as the code of safety on the COVID. You know, as 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 far as the potential of him bringing it into our safety zone, which is the uh, which is the house, and uh, and uh, I, I was I mean, I'm I'm not around him. It's like I'm like not around him when he leaves out of here. But uh, I would say probably so far that things are going functional in that light. So it is it is a uh, it is a task that have to be uh paid attention to and consult and consult with each other on you know at the advent of uh, uh the attempted parent and the uh the offspring just like you, you would, would with anybody else within that environment you know it just so happens that person may is a little bit younger and, they, and the different types of relationship that you have with that person in this case attempted parent slash offspring and uh you know you basically you know share uh in the best qualified manner that you possibly can with that person to keep things in a in a workable workable uh, 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 uh output so to speak but uh yeah those are my thoughts on that hopefully i made some sense thank you hmm. appreciate that retired firefighter commendations as well for keeping the DCS program rolling. I'm sure for some parents that is 
exactly why they have uh, continued to be enrolled and show up on the Saturday so they can get that social component, get outside, get away from the screen a little bit, like all of that is in addition to everything else, get some time learning about counter racism and all the rest of it. Like, uh, that is super important. I would encourage if we have, if you are a parent or in your case, these are black children that aren't even yours so-called biologically, but still being able to have an impact in a constructive way. So just check in, uh, just asking some questions, seeing how they're doing, invest a little bit of your time. As I said, this whole Rona situation and everything else has had a big impact on all of us. Uh, it has not missed young folks. So check in, see how they're doing. And even just remembering being a younger person, a lot of the things that were a big deal, then be able to go and hang out with your friends or the sporting activities. If you're on a football team or basketball team track, whatever it is, missing out on a lot of that stuff or having it greatly compromised is uh, it's a big deal. So check in, see how they're doing. Do the best you can. Uh, black mental health, man, for older people and younger people black mental health uh do we have any other uh attempted parents uh been checking on the welfare of their offspring may i be heard yes sir yes i spoke before but this was something i actually brought up yesterday as well and it is it is difficult but i've noticed the main things to really do is to try to keep them active even at home um, so I bought a chess board so you can actually play chess and a Monopoly board and things of that nature. And whenever you have the time, it's best to just sit down with them and not really not watch TV unless it's something that you can discuss where you can talk about the incidents or the storyline and how it relates to them. If it's nothing that you could discuss with them, don't even bother watching TV when you have that spare time. Invest in and actually uh, playing a board game, board game with them and having a conversation about anything they want to talk about, whether it be cartoon characters or whatever. But if you could keep it more um, closely related to what's going on, it's, it's better. Um, also, just going outside. I got, you know, I got them a, a mountain bike so we can go outside and still ride, even though up here in the Northeast it's cold. But it's something that to me is just mandatory. Um, so those are the those are the steps that I've been taking and trying to get him to to cook <laughs> along with me now is, is another one too. Um, also, a side note, something you you just mentioned. I don't know if you've seen this, but you may see this, and other listeners may have seen it. Is that the uh, secrets? Um, the FBI and the New Jersey law enforcement sheriff was just at. Um, the head of the new Black Panther Foundation, they were just at his home and he recorded the whole entire incident and they were asking him, were you a part or contributing to the violence that took place at the Capitol? And he made sure he put it on camera so everybody could see like, as you know, introducing all the police officers, all the officers and officials there and then stated in front of them, no, I was not a part of it. We have no connections with any right-wing groups and would prefer to be so. Please leave my residence. And uh, that was it when he closed off with there. But um, I thought that was interesting when you just mentioned that because that is something that I think is occurring across the country more frequently than we could probably imagine. I'll mute my line. Oh, yeah. 
all the video that I have seen from the Capitol in the last week, I saw lots of new Black Panther Party members uh, out in the streets of D.C. and in the Capitol building, breaking window like it was just rife. New Black Panther Party members, logos all over the place. Like uh, they, they darn near invaded D.C. I'm sure there had to be a new Black Panther Party bus chartered plane to get all of those black people there and their signs. That's what I said. Not that I'm surprised or stunned. I'll repeat what I said. If I was a black person, Neely Fuller Jr., like we, I would be, I think he's been doing the whole Rona thing. So I'm pretty sure he's been in the house anyway, but man, I would be in the house. Sabrina Johnson, I would be in the house. Dr. Rasayan, I would be in the house. All the other folks uh, who I know uh, who are in that DC DMV area, Emmy, the rest, I would be in the house. We'll have to kick it in DC. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll do it for the cherry blossom festival. Maybe things will have settled down by springtime that we can go back and kick it in DC. But for the foreseeable future, at least for the winter, I'm going to pass on that one. And then the audacity today. That's exactly. I'd said that earlier. Didn't I talk about no knock warrants? If it was black identity extremists, if it was the, the, what, the no effing around group had their signs and they were going to do their parade and March in DC. Like, Oh my goodness. The, <laughs> we wouldn't even have be having this discussion. The jails would be stuffed and we'd be talking about making sure we could send uh, Rona masks to all the black people who've been locked up for charges for last week. Guantanamo Bay style. Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred metaphor there. Guantanamo Bay style. Uh, intense, maybe even not charged, detained, greater confinement, tortured even maybe. Number again is seven two zero. 716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, if you have other thoughts observations to share certainly if we have parents uh, proceed can I be heard uh, greetings Mo in Dallas yes sir uh, greetings Gus uh, greetings, listeners and callers. Thank you for the program. Um, in response to your uh, parent comment, um, I have uh, actively been um, checking on the mental welfare of my children. I have, uh, I'm, a, I'm an attempted parent of uh, two offspring, one young male, one young female. Um, it is difficult. Uh, with with the uh, distant learning, um, I have I've seen a, a drop in in my in my students' grades uh, since this Rona thing has has you know been an issue, and I've made it uh, I've made a point not to send them back to school, and it's kind of hard uh, just because the amount of just non-care from the teachers um like uh uh my my daughter um has been living with me for the majority of her life and uh with the with her distant learning situation it's like a lot of the times her assignments aren't uploaded but she's still you know they still count against her 
and I sit with her sometimes and, and we, we talk to the teacher together, you know, explaining that, you know, the task, like I'll give you an example, like she's assigned an article to read um, and the article comes with a quiz and the link is supposed to be at the bottom of the article. But a lot of times her links aren't there, you know, and and the teachers just, you know, uh, well, we'll get to it later. And 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 that that does uh, a number on on her on her comprehension because like a lot of times when the quiz is available the article isn't you know so like just kind of uh getting her to to yeah, um take notes on 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 critical things in articles like that you know it's kind of hard uh being that she is you know very young not even a preteen yet so you know her attention span her attention span is very short so um um with the um with my son, it's kind of the same thing, but he doesn't uh, live with me, so uh, he does have like a cellular device. I, I was against it, but he still got it. Uh, but what he does do now is he calls me and gets he gets assistance with his work, you know, and and that's kind of difficult in itself because then he might get in trouble for being on the phone in class, you know. So it's a whole that's a thing in itself. Uh, now um, with with the with my children not um, being able to, you know, play with friends or whatever. Uh, it, it has been a struggle. So I see, I find myself involved with them more. You know, I'll I try to be as involved as I, you know, as I should, but I work two jobs. So, you know, that's kind of hard, but I did, um, I did hang a tire swing though. So that was interesting. And, and um, a lot of my neighbors thought it was cool. You know, so so we make sure to clean it and give it give access to other children. So if their parents, you know, want to come out and play with the tire swing, they can things like that. And I'm lucky that I have uh, that my children, you know, do have a sibling to play with. Um, um, they're also uh, just just clean by nature. Like you know, they love bathing and 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 keeping their hands clean. So as that's not an issue. They were kind of brought up that way. So that kind of worked to our benefit, uh, but uh, it has been uh, very, very difficult uh, with the with with uh, with them not being able to actually physically go to school. Um, you know, um, they they and, and and it's it's kind of you you kind of have to like the previous caller stated you have to, you kind of have to force them outside. You have to force them to use their brains now. Because you know it was it, it used to be you know not an option to go outside and and get fresh air. Now since everything's in the home, you know, like I, I took my children to the lake and my son was like, "Why?" And I was like, "Air, son, like air and sun. We we're gonna we're gonna try some of this. It's actually quite nice." And and he, he enjoyed himself, but uh, like it, you know, it was it was uh, it, it it's kind of promoting a mindset of I don't have to leave the house with my children. You know, that that's the kind of, I've, I've noticed that they have that kind of ideology in a sense. Um, I, I want to say my son more than my daughter. He's a little older. You know, he likes everything he likes is in the house, his game or whatever. So I had to um, get different things. I got him a scooter, got her roller skates. Uh, my daughter also has a bike. My son has a bike, but it's at home. Um, uh, so, like, but but I I do my due due diligence and and trying to to keep them active, 
um, as well as, you know, thinking. Um, we play chess, checkers. We just played Uno. We have a lot of board games. We do jigsaw puzzles. So, um, and it, it kind of gives us an excuse to find new things to do. And, and, I, and I allow them to participate, you know. Um, it's not just me buying old games or whatever. Uh, like I, I asked them what they would like to, what they would like to do. My son just got, I think a hundred water balloon grenades that he can't use right now, but we're going to find something to do with them. So like it is, it's interesting. And it's, it's, it's just, you know, I got a hundred water balloons, but I can't play with kids or they can't play with children. So we got to figure that out. But it's just things like that, that, um, that really kind of, you know, stifle their, their social skills if you will, if that makes any sense. They can't really talk to the kids in the class. Everybody's on mute. Um, uh, um, another short thing about the Capitol. I don't know if this was brought up. I did come into the program late. I did notice that a lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, non-white people in the, in the Capitol building had some very interesting stories. I think Ayanna Presley, um, uh, in an article, uh, stated that the panic button was removed from her office. And, uh, I want to say that was, uh, James Clyburn said that his secret office was disclosed to the, to the, to the individual individuals that actually raided the Capitol. He had one, he had an office with his name on the door and I might, I might be mistaken. It might not have been James Clyburn, but, um, but it was a black male who said that he has an office with his name labeled and he has another office that he works in. And the, 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 the insurrectionist domestic terrorist um, went to the unknown office, like directly. Like, so I thought that was very interesting. That's all I have on me, my line. Wow. That, that I'd heard that some of the black capital workers, because uh, a little bit of that was included in the audio segment uh, with some of the black uh, Capitol Police officers uh, were talking about seeing some of their white officers in the mob and being called a nigger during all of this. It's not funny. I'm just, you know. um, but they talked about some of that. So, yes, I would, man, if I can find any information, uh, if uh, Representative uh, James Clyburn in South Carolina uh Pitchfork Ben Tillman's South Carolina, Dylan Storm Roofs, South Carolina. Um, let's see. I'm just I'm looking at the news now to see if I can find any information on that. It might take me uh, a little bit of uh, time to yeah see if I can find an exact report. Once I do, I will definitely share. But I'm not surprised at all. Uh, just with again now imagine the new Black Panther Party not effing around Al Sharpton even somehow they have breached security at the Capitol and now they have Nancy Pelosi's you know secret office or bunker you know things have gotten imagine such a thing come on Gus can I add something Yes. Um, yes sir. I found uh Representative Ayanna Presley's her ad in CBS Boston 
where she was, uh, the, the headline says, all panic buttons and rep Ayanna Presley's office ripped out before Capitol riot. That's the headlines. Um, I just Googled uh, Presley panic button and that article came up. Um, I'll see if I can find the other one about the, about the secret office. But that's on CBA, CBS Boston, WBZ4. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. Uh, I guess just for, I don't know what you would call it, comparison, because uh, I was checking for James Clyburn first. I'll get the Iona Presley report as well, but I was checking for Mr. Clyburn. And the report that came up with the most mentions for this week, and in fact, the last 24 hours or so, uh, in active healing. Representative James Clyburn calls for making black national anthem a national hymn and or making that song uh, lift every voice and sing, making that the new national anthem. VGQ, you know, that's his suggestion. (laughs) VGQ. (laughs) But, uh, well, I guess one point, You talk about civil war. That's a phrase I've heard a lot this week. You think people are upset. White people are upset about Colin Kaepernick or Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or anybody else taking a knee during the national anthem. You want to see white vigilante pitchfork Ben Tillman style mob violence change the national anthem. To lift everyone, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, like, uh, I shouldn't be like, cause you talk about total white anarchy. We're going out for the world, man. Come on, come on. We're going out to start the world series, and now we'll have Alicia Keys to sing the national anthem, cowbell, lift every voice, and man, man. New civil war. I don't think that would solve it. Even if it wasn't a yeah. civil war. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. I did find a uh, an article for Jim Clyburn. It's by a Washington Examiner, uh, published on January 8, 2021. Um, the headline is Jim Jim Clyburn suggests capital riot capital rioters new to target specific offices. Uh, something else was going on. That's the headline in the Washington Examiner. Sorry to cut you off. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Mm. I will. Oh, no. Well, this is two oh no's. So I found those reports. Uh, However, I also found the same article listed in the New York Post I had to say, oh, no, because both of these are publications that I generally do not view as trustworthy for various reasons. Not that they are necessarily bad all the time and they do have accurate information sometimes, but generally these would not be like if it was information that I was going to take forward to somebody, it would not be from the post or the examiner. But 
they do have accurate information there. I say bless it like I would never share anything from the Washington Examiner, the New York Post I have sometimes, but the Washington Examiner like no way. Uh, but they do have it. Uh, both of us. Let's see what the New York Post says. I'll check the other one. The New York Post, their report, J- uh, Representative James Clyburn suggests Capitol rioters may have had inside intel. Uh, Representative Clyburn said Sunday he believes the Capitol rioters may have had inside information, noting that the mob somehow find his office despite there being no sign on the door. I have an unmarked office that you have got to know exactly where it is. Clyburn told CNN anchor Jake Tapper on State of the Union. The House Majority Whip said that he spends most of his time in that office instead of a second one, which does have signage above the door, indicating that it's his. They didn't go to where my name was. They went to where I usually hang out. That, to me, indicates that something untoward may have been going on. The the South Carolina Democrat previously suggested that there may have been people in the Capitol building who were complicit in helping the rioters. They knew where to go. I've been told by some others in Congress, people that their staff are saying that they saw people being allowed into the building through side doors. Who opened those side doors for the protesters? Or I call these mobsters to come into the building, not through the main entrance where magnometers are, but through side doors. Yes, somebody on the inside of those buildings were complicit. Would have to be. That makes sense. I'll post this one, even though, like I said, but I'll post this one. Uh, Logical, very logical. Mobsters, mobsters. We say all the time, or I say, I think Mr. Fuller has it as well. The gangsters, the number one gangsters in the known universe. Racist man, racist woman racist child not even close but yet and still I probably wouldn't call these folks mobs VGQ no criticism from Mr. Clymer just saying words are important I probably wouldn't call these folks mobsters would probably have to be stronger language definitely criminal mobsters are, are for sure crim- but mobsters are like glorified see that's the thing that would that would be a reason why I'd have to shy away from that like we we glorify gang everybody loves the godfather right right we name they pick nicknames and such after gangsters. Everybody loves Scarface, right? Lucky Luciano. We love these folks. So yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to pick gangsters. And then sometimes the gangsters, they get so good. They become senators and president and all the rest of it. We don't want to go gangster terrorists, treasonous white terrorists, nothing to be celebrated there. Uh, other folks commentary. They want to get in. We have about 15 minutes, 15 minutes left in the broadcast. Bay Area mom, Bay Area mom, did you have commentary? You should be with us. Thanks for taking my call. Um, can you hear me clearly? Yes, ma'am. Oh, super. Thank you again. Um, greetings to everyone on the line and listening. Ah, so I do have a child. Well, he's an adult male. Um, he's in college. Uh, <laughs> he told me he went to the campus. Uh, it's so different because, of course, you know, in March when they made the older kids just beat it, 
um, <laughs> everything was everywhere. His stuff was everywhere. So when he got back into the state, he had to retrieve his stuff from wherever it went. Um, one of his friends that live in New York had some of his stuff. And so she went back on campus. So she lives on campus and he went to uh, get his uh, stuff. So the dorms have changed. Um, it's basically one, yeah, you might can get two people in the dorm, but you can't have company. Um, in the elevator, only one person at a time. Now keep in mind, this is a, a private music college. So, uh, uh, a lot of these children have instruments, so you literally have to wait in line or take the stairs or however you would get wherever you're going to get. So that's going to be complicated. Um, when school starts back, uh, yes, next week or the week after. Um, the, the, it's like an assembly line. However, you gotta, you gotta make sure you stay six feet. Um, away from everything and everyone, then they're policing you and they're making the students police each other. So if you see anyone out of order, you make sure you tell. And um, no party, of course, no parties, none of that stuff and anything out of order, you tell. Someone's got their mask, trying to breathe, covering under their um, mouth instead of covering their nose, you better report them. So that kind of uh, thing. So for him, he was so excited to uh, be on campus, uh, 2019. Whoa. So here it is, 21. He's not excited. So it's good that he has his own uh, space. As far as uh, socializing, him, he's not, well, he had friends and stuff, you know, but he's not very, He's only, he, he, he would only go out if it was, like a, maybe a prom or a, a, something like that, something major. He's not an outer like that. He doesn't really roam. Uh, he's not a typical uh, teenager, uh, so he's more into his agenda. And since his music, uh, a lot of his stuff is digital online, um, I think one of his things is uh, electronic production production and design so for him it's fine as far as online learning uh at, at march especially trying to complete it until june it was awful because the instrument and the facility it's much needed to do the work so he it was hard to maintain his grade now he's not gonna go below a so that never happened but uh now he's picked classes that will work with being sheltered in place. Um, uh, so because he went back to the state where his school is, he has access to the instrument. So he can knock some of that out. Some of those things that require the major instruments that he don't, doesn't own. He can utilize that. Um, just to knock out everything. Cause I think school will be over in May. Um, it's it's interesting, uh, but for him, it's not. It, it's just strange. So uh, he had to get tested for this virus uh, yesterday. So I'm agitated, and he's agitated, but because I don't want anything in his nose. <sighs> so um, 
And he sounded like somebody stuck something in his nose, too, when I talked to him yesterday. So then I called him today. And he sounded a little clearer. I have, um, I make sure I, he takes, I keep him in the loop as far as whatever uh, supplements to take and seeing your nose, uh, Neosporin. And I just, I do the best that I can to make sure he's taking care of himself. Um, and we just will have to see. But with the report, I did hear about uh, the uh, congressman get because he was talking about it. And he was, uh, uh, you know, that look, you didn't think it was going to happen, then it happened, and then to put take the panic buttons out. It, it, the way they're going to switch this around, and it's going to really hit us hard. Oh dear, it's uh, yeah, it's going to hit us hard. All of this is going on now, but they're going to hit us just like. They said they went to the uh, the gentleman had spoken. Said they went to what is it? A new black one of the uh, uh, Black Panther Party guys' house. They're gonna do that. They're they're yeah. It's gonna be hard for us. This they're light footing with the other. They're soft. They're very soft with the white people, but with us, they're gonna hit hard with these new rules and everything that they put into place. And I'll mute my line. And thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Safety to you and your offspring. You, you said your son, he did. He had to be tested. Uh, they, there's no requirement for the vaccine that you know about currently. They just had to get tested. He's not on campus. Oh, okay. So he has to get tested to be to uh, just to um, pass through. Oh, okay. um, he in order to live on campus, you must get the vaccine. Oh, OK. OK. Very important. Yes, I would probably be happy to be off campus, too, then to avoid all of that. And I'd probably still be a little salty, as the young folks say, about uh, having to do the test. But I guess I could probably mitigate that a lot better than the vaccine. So, yeah, that's uh, right on. Hope he stays safe and has a great uh, scholarly uh, academic year. Um. Yeah, and Brad, that's you just try to do the best that you can and share information, you know, for him to take it seriously. And um, yeah, that's about all you can do: um, share information and encourage them to take it safely and to not have guests and such. Just to be about be about your uh, be about your business, I guess. Um, yeah, to have to live on campus—that wow, like that whole environment. Like you can only have so many people on the elevator, and I've read the reports where you can only have so many people in like the bathroom area, the shower area, and the snitching is encouraged. Like, oh, you didn't cover your mouth when you sneezed. Up, oh, call him on campus security. Didn't? Did, yep, he covered his nose. I mean, wow, that is uh, does not sound like fun times in higher ed. Uh, do we have other folks, uh, any final comments that want to make sure they get in before we conclude? We will be here Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific, uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, any final thoughts folks want to share? Clap. Got everyone. grand uh as i said we'll be here tomorrow and monday 
have to check to see if we will be able to have uh, Mr. Dershowitz uh, with us. Uh, that would be a strong illustration, uh, the challenge uh, of having white guests on. We could always have other victims of white supremacy on and, you know, gripe and fuss at them and name call for how they have responded to the system of racism. We could do that. I don't see that that solves many problems, but that's always available. Or we could talk to the folks who are causing the problem or at least suspected of causing the problem. Now you have someone like Alan Dershowitz, like, wow, just the OJ Simpson trial. He was right there. So lots of information, you know, to glean from that whole situation. Then he's been involved with so many other high profile cases. Like I said, Trump's impeachment. And in fact, I even forgot he just was out and he was talking about the vaccines. He was talking about mandatory vaccines for everybody and saying that that should be the logical course. It's in the interest of public safety to just everybody go ahead and everybody get the vaccine and we can be over and done with it. And you know, what did I say before civil war? I think you would have tons of individuals classified as white who would be furious about that. And you know, over my cold dead hand, isn't that what he said? Uh, so yeah, but it would be so many things uh, that to discuss, to address, to examine, to ask questions, just, you know, him being an attorney in general uh, to ask questions about as opposed to squabbling with other victims of white supremacy. And we don't agree with how they're responding or they don't agree with how we're responding. Victims guaranteed qualified. No problem. Let's focus on the problem. Try to learn constructive information and get this here system of racism vanquished immediately. Uh, much obliged, everyone, for their participation. Hope it was a constructive use of your Saturday evening. Again, we will be here tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Monday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White woman, white people returning to the cows. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy, especially like with everything that's happening right now. You really want to have your brain computer working at a highly efficient level. Uh, we will need like high level thinking, high level problem solving uh, to deal with all of this madness and just to try to ascertain what is actually happening. So and in addition, so many reasons, in addition, <clears throat> you do not want to be out and about and suddenly you are stopped and confronted enforcement official badge or no. And now you are not thinking correctly because of what you have imbibed or whatever it is like. Let's really be about being sober, clear thinking, as they say. Uh, in addition to being sober, let's be buckled. If we're going to be out and about, I would encourage hunkering down. If you're going out for something uh, constructive, you're taking your children out to get a little air. You're going to do an errand that's you know essential. You're going to work, whatever it is all well and good uh, while we're doing these things be very alert of what's happening around you uh, if it looks like anything looks suspicious anything looks untoward shh, let's get out of here I'm not taking any chances particularly if it looks like somebody is being loud they're escalating we should be thinking like hey this person could be armed Molotov cocktail firearm explosive who knows this person, in fact, might have a whole gang 
of individuals classified as white with them ready for violence. I would say most of us probably did not leave our residence prepared for mortal combat as such, like let's get out of here. Uh, we are not hanging around and, you know, trying to be loud and rowdy with some random stranger, uh, with everything that's happening currently. Uh, so we are sober. We're hunkering down, but if we got to go out, we're buckled. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone again, just trying to do the small things to minimize contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe. Some of them, Mark Furman wouldn't be surprised if he was one of the ones at the Capitol. Uh, And uh, we are just trying to remain, be mindful. We don't have all the energy to be on the cell phone and texting and all of that and remain aware of what's happening around us. Text when we get home. Uh, That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.